after the very first Python program went out. This is a story George tells. He sent a letter to the BBC after the first program, which was by no means a success. It was sort of, you know, very much on the on the edge. And George had sent a, a, a note to say that he thought it was great. And we never got the note. Life can be fine if we're both 69 If we sit on our faces and all sorts of places to play Till we're blown away And that aisle is kind of, that's before Aisle is a, my lips erase you I'll sit and face and tell you I'll sit and face and then I'll love you truly Life can be fine if we're both 69 If we sit on our faces and all sorts of places to play Till we're blown away I loved it. It was just the thought of doing it at the Albert Hall. It was just too great a moment to uh, not take advantage of. After the beautiful Indian music, to lower the tone considerably, to let him know the heights and depths of George's taste. Uh, transcends all previous uh, specialists. Here had to do the, the, the build into it. And it seemed to just be nice. It was kind of, it sort of dealt with what the evening was. And it wasn't, it absolutely wasn't about people saying, this man who changed my life, this wonderful person, this saint, which would have been completely wrong. That George would have really hated. Bigness of someone so hugely big in our little lives that his bigness and our littleness are like opposite stars of a stellar, oh, I didn't want to do this anyway. I don't want to go to tributes all my life. I wanted to be homosexual. <laughs> Leaping from man to man as they float down the mighty rivers of British Columbia. <laughs> the policeman, the plumber, <laughs> the mighty traffic warden, <laughs> the little church hall organiser. Oh no, blah blah blah. Anyway, right. Uh, and to be a lumberjack leaping from tree to tree as they float down the mighty rivers of British Columbia. The giant redwood, the larch, the mighty, the fir, the mighty Scots pine. The smell of fresh cut timber, the crash of mighty trees. With my best girl by my side, we'd sing, sing, sing. Oh, I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all So we ended up doing the lumberjack song, which was a big favourite of George's. Indeed, he used to have a forwarding address. He used the alias Jack Lumber um, somewhere in Hawaii. But anyway, he loved Lumberjacks. I was, well, yes, we'll do that. You know, I'll write all these things that would merely make George squirm and then we can undercut them and go into the Lumberjack song. But it's, it's a good, good idea of Terry's. He sleeps all night and he Gotta make up my ass. That's <laughs> a special makeup artist coming. Yeah, it's a very specialised work making up your ass. You know, it's not many people do that job. It takes a special kind of guy. Are you reading a travel magazine? That's a bit ironic, isn't it? Uncle Palin's seen reading a travel magazine. One that he's not in, which is a very rare thing. Uncle Palin. Where next? Where next? Constantly thinking of George up there and what he would have wanted and probably wouldn't have wanted the thing at all, you know, just come on and 
fall over a bit. Personally, grated. These are grated by El Greto from Turin. Great my shoes because they're new shoes and very slippery surface. And if you fall off the stage in the Albert Hall, what an idiot! You're slippery. See, the socks that I've got for you are somewhat longer. I think at the side looks great. Yeah. Do you think to spend this, have them at the side? Do you want to try it? That's, that's very bizarre, because that's the way I always when I drew cartoons of those. Yeah, I have them on the side. The side is fine. The side? Yeah, yeah. Is that enough? It's quite nice when we bow. The bottom audition, you know, for the sit on my face and a lot of laughing about when the bottom should be revealed. Stand still. Oh my God. I think Terry had his bottom out long before it was necessary. You know, it's an important thing to moon the Albert Hall. How many people have had a chance to moon the Albert Hall after they're 60 years old? Four of us. <laughs> This is a bit tight. Uh, <coughs> Men's legs with garters are really so these, these are Scottish knees. <laughs> um, the Freds are sort of in a, in a dressing room. They, they'd quite like to just hear how we're going to end it and all that. So I get them to come in. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the lavatory. On Wednesdays I go shopping and have butter and scones for tea. He cuts down trees, he eats his lunch, he goes to the lavatory. On Wednesdays he goes shopping as butter and scones for tea. He's a lumberjack and he's okay, he sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I skip and jump, I like to press wildflowers. I put on women's clothing and hang around in bars. I got on the phone to Fred Tomlinson just after you've written it. And I said, Fred, you know, if I kind of hum this to you, would, can you put some music to it? And they were the, you know, they'd done some, well, here's a lumberjack that was done, spam, 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 wonderful spam, 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 lovely spam. They do these harmonies. You know, that was the Fred Toms, very, very, very important. And they vital to Python. Let's just take you four guys on first. Yes. We'll leave the tongues on the side for a moment. We'll you the moment has come and jolly, we'll, jolly we'll try and run this in real time if you want to. We would like because we'd like, like to do our change. Because if we don't we won't know our change. Yeah. I'd just like to do it step by step. Yeah, yeah. If we don't run it in real time, I don't think they'll quite appreciate what you're trying to do. Which is very difficult. That's quality, isn't it? That's quality. That is that is Now, what was always embarrassing with him was he knew everything backwards and forwards with Python. And he, you know, he'd throw out a line expecting you to, to, to come back with whatever the response should have been. I didn't know what he was talking about half the time. And the Python stuff actually became really tedious after a while, him and his love of Python. <laughs> and as they go there, applause will carry them all the way there. But if you old buggers can't get changed within a minute and a half, I know you've got to put all sorts of medical equipment on and things like that. Get the pants on is what we have to do. That's going to take all the time in the world. And then there's all that all You can just busk. Busk in the Albert Hall. Busk in the Albert Hall. Yeah, you can do it.
Well, while I've got you all here, <laughs> I'd like to draw your attention to my next appearance in the Blue Water Shopping Mall. Yeah, you can sign a week from now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike told me you'd said yeah. find a copy that wasn't signed. No, I told my driver, I said I found a very yeah. rare unsigned yeah, copy of your one, book. Yeah. Which, is, which is worth a lot, actually. So there we were in the room together, and it was really a very, very nice, one of the best Python experiences. Oh, a lot of laughs, and everyone was on very good form, and I think there was a real feeling that it was going to be a special evening. 15 minutes to go. Set your watches. 15 minutes. Terry, watch out for that kettle. Am I watching my own hitting embarrassments? Oh, I'm ready. I thought it would just be a private affair. No, no, no. Well, a little reunions where things get It was certainly the first time we'd all done, or four of us had done Lumberjacks on for a long, long time with... Tom Hanks standing in for John Cleese. <laughs> Fair trade-off, I thought. John won't work again. A little tuck done. <laughs> I was thinking of having a little tuck. Yeah. What do you think? No, I think Just little your bottom's tuck. absolutely fine. Really? Yes, I do. Thank you. <laughs> thinking a bit of lipo. It's <laughs> only <laughs> <laughs> so having a bit sucked out of here and put in here. Mm. Does it get incredibly hard in here? They needed the perfect bridge between the Indian band yeah. and the electric band. What would be good? <laughs> yeah. Poetry? Photo montage? Racing cars? Barreling through? It's it, boys. Good luck, Tom. I'll meet you in the hall. We're turning right. I'll be following you, but I promise I won't lose you. You feel that buzz out there, and then they go up and whoosh! The whole place just blew open. It was fantastic. From the sublime of the Indian music to the utter ridiculousness of, you know, 60-year-old men mooning and singing. <laughs> there was yeah, a lot of love in that room. It's, again, hard to describe that night because it, it seemed so brief, and yet you kind of want to hold on to it. The sense of it, the audience, the people on the stage were just... There was no seriousness in the sense. It was, because George wasn't serious in that way. I, I think he would have despised us all getting up there and saying some of the things that are said at other people's dues. This is a very special night. I think because it was for George, you know, that, that really made us feel it was so different from the fact that, you know, just doing it for lots and lots of money for a producer and got a reunion together. I mean, it was just... That's what made the atmosphere so so special for all of us, and everyone was terribly elated at the end of it. Harry, Harry, you got to. Tired. It's a lonely man on stage. Sad and lonely man. I wanted to be a lumberjack. Leaping from tree to tree as they float down the mighty rivers of British Columbia. You know, there'd been a year to people get themselves back together. And then 
you wanted you wanted to go on and on and on. I was really a bit disappointed that, that it had to end. And I think everybody felt the same thing because we're having such fun, and it was all all for him. With my best girl on the side, we'd sing, sing, sing. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, folks, this is widescreen podcasting. This is wide, widescreen screen podcasting. Ding. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Yes, we are here, folks. We are here with part two of our look into the concert for George. I hope you've listened to part one. If not, go and check it out. In that one, we cover all of the backstory behind the concert for George, like how it came to be, all of the players, a little bit of trivia behind getting the whole thing together, a few album sales figures, that kind of thing. All part one stuff. However, unlike a regular, say, album review episode where there's like at least two episodes worth of backstory with one episode of Chitter Chat, where we go through the songs, we've decided to flip it on the head here. Well, not decided to, but that's how it certainly ended up. We're going to have one episode of the backstory, which you've just heard, and now we're going to have two episodes of me and Dylan going through song by song, event by event, moment by moment, the concert for George. And this is going to be broken up in half, A, because it would be too long, And B, because it was actually two recording sessions. Me and Dylan can talk for hours and hours about the Beatles. And when we meet up in a few months, I'm sure we'll be doing exactly just that. But we couldn't go for six hours or five and a half, however long it was. And so it was cut down into two episodes, which not only means we get to cover everything in the amount of detail that I think is fitting and due, but it also means I can get double the episodes for the same amount of content. It's all about the content, folks, as we all know. I had an absolute blast recording this one. Of course, I will always take any and all opportunities to just talk to Dylan about anything. He really is one of my closest Beatles and podcasting friends. We all get by with a little help from our friends, and Dylan more than helps me get by. These are always the most fun podcasts to record, and oh my God, was so much of this cut out. Dylan had to rein me in a lot on this one. You won't be hearing that because I've edited it to make me sound a lot more urbane and respectful. But yeah, there was an awful lot of excess material here. Material that you can certainly hear on the Patreon. I hate to talk about this in the introduction, but I just want to let you know, folks, some of these episodes I record, especially the, the live ones, months in advance. And this one, we're releasing it now in June, has been up on the Patreon since April, unedited and with video. So consider the Patreon, folks, because you do get your money's worth and you do get early access to excellent stuff like this. And you'll just have to believe me when I say the stuff that was cut was the best kind of stuff. But yeah, enough chitter chatter. Let's just cut right to the chase. This is my conversation about the concert for George with my good buddy, Dylan Seavey. You all know how this is going to go, so let's go. 
Right, folks, we're now in the live segment of the show, and that means it is time for me to bring on today's guest. And come on, you all fucking know who he is by now. He's appeared on the show so many times now. Each one more fantastic than the last, including our double bill look at Tripping the Life Fantastic, the original Let It Be documentary. We talked about Let It Be as a film before it was cool. Um, we talked about McCartney 3 Imagined, and even Paul is live. And I think we were scheduled to talk about back in the US slash back in the world at this point. But then my guest casually dropped the fact that he loves this concert film that we're talking about here today. And I cannot wait to do so. He's an incredibly accomplished musician, a wonderful conversationalist, and my brother from another mother. Everyone, will you please welcome to the show? Dylan CB. What's going on, my friend? Glad to have you here. Would you venture to say that my presence on this podcast is so hugely big <laughs> that the bigness is is one that you can barely comprehend? We're so uh, small in his bigness. Yeah. <laughs> oh my How God. you doing, buddy? I'm elated. Not only have I got one of my best beetle birds with me, but we've got one of the very best things to talk about. We've given ourselves more breathing room than we normally do today, folks. Just a little peek behind the curtain. We actually started this 20 minutes earlier than we should have. So, you know, we're really looking at how long a set this is for once and planning ahead. This is the evolution of this six, seven-year-old podcast now. We're actually doing planning. And an, uh, just an evolution <laughs> of you and I kind of yeah. personally. <laughs> and we've only had a five-minute pre-show chat because we actually know we need to crack on because we are covering one of the biggest films in Beetledom. I'd argue that this is more important than several of the films that actually star the Beatles as a band. This is one of the greatest concert films ever, and one of the most important musical moments for any Beatle fan. We're going to be talking about the concert for George today, folks. You probably guessed that because I've just done about two hours on the concert for George or the backstory in last week's episode, but hey, if you're just joining us now, that's what we're doing here today. Now, Dylan, before we start, have you managed to stay faithful to me, or have you been seeing those hussies over at Two Legs since our last episode? Excuse me, I have absolutely Go back to your ready-made no whores. commitments or ties. <laughs> That's I all you're good them. for? I love you. Hey, listen, there's two legs and there's Paul or nothing, and only one of those podcasts has asked me to record some theme music for them. So, mm. Well, I would love to hear your cover version of Zoo Gang for my opening theme. I think that'd be great. <laughs> One of the worst songs in McCartney's catalog. Hey, it ain't no proud mum. It's it's definitely no proud. You not that that's also saying a whole lot, but <laughs> no, um, I I uh, those guys. It actually has been a hot minute since I've talked to the two legs fellas, same, but same. now just just to spite you, I'll uh, I'll get on them and and try to be on their next episode. But hey, you know. It's nice that we've actually got an episode that we're both going into that I largely feel like we both like. Like, I feel like this is going to be quite different for us because normally we, we've we got quite good natural good cop, bad cop thing where if you like a song, typically I won't like it. And if I like a song, typically you will find some flaw in it and it's really great radio slash podcasting. But I think it's safe to say, spoiler alert, we both love the concert for George, right? I, I, I'm struggling to think of... Anything largely negative I have to say at all. When I was making my notes last night, I there were a few times where I was like, oh, maybe I'm being a bit harsh here. And then I yeah, I, I look back and, and maybe my most negative comment 
that I have to say about anything in this concert is is nicer than certain things I've had to say about other projects we've talked about. And you and I have talked about some, you know, we've talked about Let It Be, the, the film, which is a hugely important historical document and certainly enjoyable in its own right, depending on how you look at it. And, um, you know, there's certainly elements of the McCartney live albums we've talked about that are, are perfectly fine. But, yeah, I think it's safe to say that nothing we've talked about previously, you know, be it either of those or McCartney 3 Imagined, none of it touches this. I have very little negative to say. So uh, maybe that doesn't make for as interesting podcasting, but... I, I also assume that most people listening will feel similarly, so we can all celebrate together. The little devil's advocate in the back of my mind is like, oh, we can have some fun with this one then. Because all I have to do is just read my notes and say the exact opposite thing that I've written, and that'll roll you up. Well, I'll know that you're lying. No one likes Eric Clapton's solo in While My Guitar Gently Weeps. It's a, it's a minor footnote in the Beatles history. Everyone knows that. Come on. Come on. Oh. Anyway, for those who don't know, the concert for George was a concert film that came out in 2003 that catalogued an epic concert from 2002 to celebrate, the well, not celebrate, but to celebrate the life of George Harrison, who passed in 2001. So it was a journey three years in the making. It was held at the Royal Albert Hall here in the UK, in London, with one of the greatest lineups ever committed to stage. I think we spent over an hour going through it on the last episode, probably more. And it was attended by about 5,300 people. Not to be too blunt, but... Y'all really should have seen this if you're listening to this podcast by now. Most novice Beatles fans are at least aware of it. It is seminal viewing. It really is. So if you haven't seen the concert for George, at least half of it is on YouTube right now. Go watch a few clips or go to that Russian website. I can't remember that shows it on online in full. I think there's actually um, a rip of it on YouTube in full that's been up for about three or four weeks. It's only got like 50k views. I will post a link before it gets taken down. But anyway, Concert for George. Dylan, please tell me about the first time you came across this film slash album and what were your first thoughts when you saw it slash heard it? Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing about it and thinking I'd do anything to go and see it. You know, the actual event. It's pretty tough to beat Paul, Ringo, Billy Preston, Jeff Lynn, Clapton, Petty. Yeah, I think that Dylan not being there is kind of the only noteworthy exclusion that anyone could have hoped for thinking about George's bigger circle. But, you know, being in the days before streaming and widespread video sharing, you know, had had to wait over a year for the for the for the film to come out. But certainly worth more, certainly more than worth the wait. And I I thought it was tremendous. And I've seen it. I don't know how many times now. And I, I still think it's tremendous. And I obviously love the source material, but as multiple live performances and tributes have proven in the past, including ones that we've talked about, it's it's not exactly hard to mess up good source material if you if you try hard enough or don't try hard mm-hmm. enough. But the love that all of these musicians had for George clearly helped them rise to the occasion. So it, it's not just that the songs are performed exceptionally well, because they are, but they're given such an appropriate emotionalism to, mm. to help the whole event transcend to this extra level of greatness. And uh, yeah, my opinion on it has remained largely unchanged. I rewatched it 
think just about a month ago was my last rewatching, and I still think it's as tremendous today as I did 20 years ago. And mm. couldn't agree with you more. It, it is essential viewing, you know, even th- thinking of George Harrison, thinking about how essential the concept for Bangladesh is and how incredible the concert for Bangladesh is. It's, it's funny because this concert that, that George obviously isn't even physically at is in some ways just as important and essential, mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought it was amazing. I would have done anything to go, but I was 11 years old and uh, had maybe 11 cents to my name. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't going to happen. So you've actually watched this legally on a physical copy of the disc then. I mean, that puts you probably in the... M- 10% minority of Beatles fans who are aware of this. <laughs> oh, what are you talking about? No, I, I think this is an extremely, I, I, I think this has sold God knows how many DVD, Blu-ray, CD copies. I've, I don't have it with me currently, but I still have the DVD that I bought when I was 12 years old when it came out. And oh, I, so cool. I watch it all the time and yeah, have, have yet to, uh, procure the blu-ray copy or any sort of remaster which i would love but watching the dvd in my sound system here still sounded incredible No, because like it's been reissued god knows how many times and it's still got an above beatles price tag on it which just shows you how physically valuable this thing is like you know i've mentioned before I was introduced to this on youtube you know i watched all the clips and you know 100 percent of it's not there and I imagine the same is for a lot of you out there who have similar Beatles-based algorithms on your searches. But since it's not all there, I was naturally drawn to watching the rest of the film. And I don't know how I very first watched it. It probably was downloaded illegally. Sorry, George. Sorry, Olivia. Sorry, Danny. But you know when you, people talk to you about the, the moment when they see their child for the first time? Like, they might be cynical during the pregnancy. They're like, oh, God, am I going to love this child? I was a bit like that with this. I'm like, Am I really going to be this into a concert for George? Like, I, I kind of know his solo career. He's not my favourite Beatle. And I kind of felt a similar way going into living in the material world. Like, how much can I really get out of a George Harrison documentary, regardless of whether it's directed by Martin Scorsese? And with Living in the Material World and this concert film, when I looked down at the baby in my arms for the for the very first time, I was like, that's it. I'm in love. I am utterly disappointed. <laughs> You know, I will die to defend this concert film now. I've never heard a bad word spoken about it, but like, you know, when you've had a few on a night out with your mates, you're like, God, I hope someone says something to us, you know, so we can start a fight because Saturday night's all right for fighting. I feel like that about concert videos. I want someone to take a negative stance so I can just eviscerate their jugular. You know what I mean? Well, it's borderline impossible. It will certainly get in. Yeah, we'll we'll certainly get into the, the track by track review here in a second, but when I think about any criticism that could possibly be levied against an event like this, none of them apply. So I, I struggle to think what someone even could say that would be negative. I, oh, I mean, okay. No, no, that uh, you brought up a good point. Let's, let's go through some of the things that could go wrong in having 20 A-listers crammed onto one stage. I mean, Joe, uh, Joe Brown talks about it in the interviews, in the behind the scenes stuff. He was like, oh, this is going to sound awful. It's going to sound cluttered and everyone's going to be on top of each other. That doesn't happen. There's no ego. There's no ego whatsoever. Paul McCartney is doing backing piano on one of these songs. You know, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, this isn't mm-hmm. a, an opportunity for everyone to get fame and publicity and promotion. No one cares about reputation. I mean, 
just going back to what you were saying, like the emotional sentiment to the whole thing is just so palpable. There is nothing that screams self-serving. This is all for George. Every single person on stage understands what they are there for. There is such an understanding of and a love for the material that's being played that sometimes you see some tribute concerts, you know, where someone, be it a guest or, you know, rarely anyone in the house band, but, you know, at some point there's somebody that's woefully underprepared and you have nothing even approaching that here. It's everyone giving it their all from a technical standpoint, and that's because they're giving it their all from an emotional and heartfelt standpoint. That, um, that even carries on with the um, the filmmaking as well, because I mean, there are, we'll talk about other great concert films in a comparative state shortly, but there's nothing in the filmmaking or the direction or the cinematography that screams flashy, pompous, overly artsy, or even sentimental. Like, the sentimentality comes entirely from your relationship. Like, you know, you get out of it what you put into it. The the closest you come from that is that 200-foot-tall picture of George that's in the background of every shot. But besides that, there's no, there's no sentimentality. Even in all the speeches and everything, everything's quite brief. And, yep, I, lo- yep, I love George, love his music. Here's Eric Clapton. You know, you know there's, there's none of this. So, yeah, me and George, I remember, blah, blah, blah. And they just get right into it. They, they maybe we could have had a bit more of that, and I'll touch on that later as well. But it's so matter of fact and earnest. Because I mean, Dylan, George Harrison wouldn't have wanted a concert for George, would he? It's 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 tough to say. I, you you have to imagine that it would not be high on his list of priorities if he were to figure out how he would want to be tributized. I don't think he would. But at this, <laughs> but at the same time. George, George's whole personality, I, I feel like it would be inappropriate for me to say that George was loved like none of the other Beatles were, because certainly there's God knows how many people who loved John and continue to love Paul and Ringo, but George's entire sort of ethos and personality really lent to this sort of inner circle of friends that was more, I guess in a way, widespread than I, than I think the others have ever experienced. I, I, it's mm-hmm. George is the reason that the Traveling Wilburys existed. Mm-hmm. George is, is the reason that handmade films existed. He was so personable and mm-hmm. really valued friendship and relationships and and life in a way when i say that that john paul and ringo didn't just solely in in the actual way the actual like approach that he took to all of it you know when paul passes away there will certainly be a, a huge tribute to him and um and it will be incredible and there will be a great you know i'm but sure that's his the thing will be- that's, that's 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 the thing when we get Living in the Material McCartney, directed by Martin Scorsese, everyone's going to be, oh, he worked with them. That was his producer. That was his family. It's not going to be, that was his friend. That was his friend. That was his friend. We don't kn- I mean, he probably has it. Well, we know some of them. You know, we know Costello and, 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 and we, 
he certainly It's not has... a Rolodex, though, is it? It's not like, oh, and he's friends with this one, this one, this one. There's not a... You know, there are loads of photos of Paul with people, but it's rarely, like, in the way, in a kind of pally... Like, you know, we've got the Michael Jackson washing the dishes photos. Like, that's about it, you know? But, but George, the closed-off, quiet, grumpy, recluse Beatle, has the most friends, the most die-hard fans, like... George is no one's least favourite Beatle. Let's get that clear. You know, he was, he's either everyone's second or third. Fact. (laughs) Fact. Well, when Paul introduces the performance of something by saying, you know, you go around his house and the ukuleles will come out, that wasn't like, that was something that happened. Everyone has. Everybody. Yeah. You know, to George, you know, Paul McCartney wasn't any different than Tom Petty, who wasn't any different than Joe Brown, who. Who wasn't any different than, you know, the Formula One drivers that he hung out with, you know, or or, uh, or the Monty Python guys. <laughs> he, it, it's funny, I was, I was on Facebook the other day, which I have not been on Facebook very much at all recently <laughs> for, for multiple reasons. But, you know, I'm part of a McCartney group and, and somebody made a comment about Paul being so prolific and trying all this stuff and like oh you know george needed five years in between albums and it's like well firstly that's not necessarily true uh george put out so many albums in the 70s but yeah he took five years in between gontrapo and cloud nine and didn't release another album for the rest of his life you know brainwash came out after he had passed but it wasn't because his creative muse had died george was so multifaceted, multi-layered. One of the reasons we love McCartney so much is this intense burning flame of a love that he has for music and creating music. And you just can't put it out and he can't stop. And he's so prolific. And whether or not you like everything he does, and I think anyone who says they love everything McCartney's ever done hasn't heard everything McCartney's ever done. But, you know... You've got the classical stuff and the experimental stuff and wings and all the so, and that's incredible. And on a separate level, I think it's just as incredible that George Harrison, one fourth of the biggest, greatest, most revolutionary, influential band ever, was able to say, "Yeah, music's great and I love it, but it's not everything." Mm-hmm. And he, there was so much. To him, not not to cut down Paul by saying there's not a lot to him, but with Paul, it's so directly all put into to one sort of. And certainly, he paints and has his poetry oh, and made yeah. But it's music for Paul and for George, it was everything. I mean, maybe this kind of criticism was about in the day, but like when Paul say poetry or painting. There's always these criticisms of like, oh, he's trying to be a renaissance man. He's trying to copy John, blah, blah, blah. I don't feel like when people talk about George being a film producer, they go, oh, well, that took away from the music. Like no one ever really makes that point. And it's because it was with all these people that he made these friendships and relationships with. Like, you know, Ray Ray Cooper helped run handmade films. He's a percussionist, for God's sake. You know what I mean? Like, I also think, you know, Paul has very carefully curated his public image over the last 50 to 60 years. And, you know, one of the major criticisms that gets levied against Paul is people feeling like he never turns it off. You know, he's always Beatle Paul to some degree, or he's always the high five, you know, thumbs up guy. 
But with George really starting in, in the mid-60s and, and so much of it, I think, rooted in his spiritual journey, George was always so upfront about the duality of his existence. Like, I am this, but I am not this. You know, I'm a Pisces fish. You know, <laughs> it, 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 there's there's two sides to everything. And I think because of that, no one questions it with George that he was so interested in all these things because that's how George presented himself as a very earthly, spiritual figure. So, uh, of course, he was going to be. And everything with George seems so natural. I don't doubt that with Paul, there is a real passion that goes into everything else that he's ever done. But he always, for better or worse, approaches it with such a promotional sort of attitude. And I, you know, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I'm not trying to knock that, but I, I think there is a sense of, you know, well, George is just more genuine. But yeah, I think whenever there's a concert for Paul, it will be fantastic. Ooh. But, but it, it, it's just, it, I don't know what else could be like this. Yeah. I mean, it is quite good that George did the first concert for Bangladesh. And yeah, there was the concert for Linda uh, uh, prior prior to this, mm-hmm. which kind of did the exact same format, but to a much lesser degree. Uh, and they didn't film it and promote it in the same way. But it is nice that George has the kind of the first big legacy, like tribute concert, I guess would be the best way to put it. You know, th- you know, there'll be one when all the stones pass. There'll be one for Elton John, Billy Joel, that kind of thing. Oh, quickly, quick digression. Concert for Paul. You've got Dave Grohl. Um, who else? Who, who else? Who, who else? We get. Um, I think Costello will be Costello there. Costello will be sure. there. Um, uh, I, I imagine El- Elton and Bill or Billy, especially their friends, uh, Pete Townsend. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to think of like, like yeah. I'm trying to think of like the younger artists that were on like McCartney three and stuff. Like maybe he'd try and get that that crowd in like Kanye. Yo, and he does all day. Opens the show, like rather than concert for George, we have half an hour of injuries. We have half an hour of hip hop, just straight up early Kanye. None of this uh, Jesus is King yeah. rubbish. None of this Donda rubbish. Early mid two thousands Kanye. Boom. Yeah, and none of this. <laughs> yeah, none of the whole neo Nazi rubbish. And you know, we'll get we'll get rid of that. But with the concept for Paul, it's it's so tough to say because I feel like you know I look at the the concerts that were just thrown in honor of Taylor Hawkins, the Foo Fighters drummer, and so many of those acts that were there. There were certainly a lot of close friends. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, there were a lot of close friends there. And then there are also a lot of acts that, you know, he just really admired. With with Paul, it will be a little less of that, I imagine. I feel like if Paul were in charge of it, he would end up choosing younger acts that he would just want to be associated with his name. Yeah. Which you know, I don't I don't think that could that's it's it's all coming back to the same thing. Why is Concert for George so great? Because there's none of that. There's no pretension. There is no greater sort of uh, thing that it's trying to – it's not trying to pull anything over on you. It is exactly what it's supposed to be. And I don't know 
any concert that has achieved that sense. I don't know whatever will. I'm trying to think of, I mean, honestly, and there's such different people, but when I try to think of musicians who are just so deeply beloved across the board, I mean, Dave Grohl is kind of the next person I could think of. You know, mm-hmm. if Dave were to pass away, I think there would be a very similar sort of response to that. Just a couple of things before we move on to the main portion of the show, because we're already at the point now, folks, where we should have started recording. So this is all fine. This is all above board. Don't worry. Yes, we're good now. But now, now we got to crack on. <laughs> we're good. We got to crack on. Uh, I'm going to do so many George impressions throughout throughout the show. I've just realised. Now you mentioned earlier how the sound of this show is absolutely phenomenal, and the arrangements and the interpretation are, are basically going to be perfect throughout every song. And I do apologise if I say that with every song. But we can't forget that the band leader, the the maestro, is Eric Clapton. And I am going to be bringing this up a lot. A lot of these orchestrations and arrangements are basically the arrangements Eric Clapton put together for the Japanese tour with George Harrison. It really feels that way. And do you think that slightly hampers creativity, maybe? Like, we could have gotten a bit more of a a smorgasbordy type show. Like, okay, let me rephrase my point. Clapton's influence over the entire gig gives it a unity. It gives it a cohesion. Mm-hmm. Would you have been more interested in, say, if all these artists did come in and just kind of do their own arrangements and own thing? Or do you appreciate the fact that Clapton's there to be this sturdy, non-Paul McCartney mass to kind of steer it in the right direction? It's tough for me to argue against it. I mean... And and to some degree, you know, Joe Brown's band comes in and and they do their their two songs all as a band, and it's not just Tom Petty there; it's the Heartbreakers. You know, they they all come in and do their thing, and you know they they can take certain liberties with the songs that they're going to do. I think that Clapton being there as a stabilizing force is ultimately really helpful because even though the arrangements are so faithful they never feel stilted and in fact Mm -hmm. i would say they feel less stilted than the japanese tour Mm -hmm. i think part of that is that now in in 2002 rather than the the early 90s i think that a lot of the technology has improved i think the guitar tones are much more solid and powerful Mm -hmm. All the keyboards sound, I mean, they actually have real, you know, pianos and and organs there. I think everything sounds a lot stronger Mm -hmm. at this show. Yeah, I I don't listen to anything and think that it feels stale in any way. And and in fact, I think it's ultimately a, a real positive that they have so many people on stage you know, some people have said like, oh, you know, look, there's, you know, seven guitarists on stage, but it does create in a way almost this surround sound, you know, mm-hmm. having Jeff Lynn there also makes sense. You know, someone who's known for overlaying so many guitars, it really does sound so full and complete that you have every single part covered and the fact that it's played as fluid as it is. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I, I, I don't feel that anything is stilted, especially and, and also, you know, not only do we have 
like I said, you know, Joe Brown and the Heartbreakers there to sort of, you know, bump that sort of tradition of only having the house band. But there are certain songs, you know, where they switch off vocalists or obviously we have the the version of something that starts off one way, goes into another way. I think that there's enough variety in the arrangements and the performances where it doesn't feel 100% of the time like it's just copy and pasted. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's extremely well rehearsed and prepared. And then the ultimate spirit of rock and roll takes over and prevails and succeeds miraculously. It's mad how much rehearsal they actually got out of A-list rock and roll stars. Like, there's no, like, ah, I'm just going to push the TV out the hotel and screw some hookers. No, no, they're all like, uh, Miss, Mr. Clapton, am I in the right note? You know, <laughs> you know, yeah. there is a real master craft to this whole thing. You, you know that Clapton knows these songs inside and out. And you've also got the steady hand of Jeff Lynne not only being there as a performer, but he also produced the album. And I think one of the best things about this is that there's no live mix and album mix. Both are exactly the same. This is, it's one thing, it's concert for George. If it's the film, it's concert for George. If it's the album, if it's the YouTube clip, whatever, it's all very, very cohesive. It, it, it's, it's one experience. And unlike, say, Wings Over America, I don't pick up on any overdubs or redos or anything like that. I mean, you don't hear any flubs because they're masses who have actually rehearsed for the, probably the first time in many years for many of them. They're actually... Oh, no, tell oh, me we'll, now. We'll, don't, get... No, don't even wait till the song. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, we're going to go, we're going to go song by song. But that, that also not only proves your bad? point. Is it bad? Oh, no, none of them, none of them are bad by any means. They're just little things that I've picked up on throughout the years and, and two in particular that only until recently I was like, oh, interesting. But it also not only does it prove the, the point that you're making, but also I think proves the earlier point that I make, which is that, you know, when I say the spirit of, of rock and roll, it's that, you know, rock and roll isn't supposed to be perfect. And there is so much of this that is, quote unquote, perfect to a degree. Mm -hmm. But there are also so many little things. And it's not even that they're wrong or bad, but there's there's some sort of unique element to it that you miss uh, now in the age where everything is so produced and locked in and tuned and, and everything like that. There's a, God, there's, it's just incredible. It's, it's so amazing. Now, you mentioned that there are no sins in this, but to quote Paul Denoyer, who actually had on this show about five years ago, when he was writing about this concert in The Word magazine, he said, its sins are only those of omission. So with that in mind, what George Harrison songs do you wish had made it onto the final set list? And folks, look, just, so folks, just to illustrate, the, the look of despair on Dylan's face when I asked him to pick a George Harrison song was immeasurable. <laughs> look, it's, I think it's easy to look at it through the lens of being a huge George Harrison fan. And you can say that it's a shame that only three solo songs were performed not from All Things Must Pass. Um, even though that's the way it goes and horse to the water are pretty impressive deep cuts. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But 
look, firstly, I can't complain about any of the compositions that are performed. And secondly, it just, it eventually becomes a numbers game. You have a certain amount of performers each playing a certain amount of songs. And are you not going to play my sweet Lord? And isn't it a pity, let alone here comes the sun and while my guitar gently weeps, you know, you're you're thinking about this all wrong. No, 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 no. Listen, we're going to ax the Indian stuff at the start, mate. I'm sorry. Listen, this is no, 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 no. You got to face this. I represent you. You asked me a question and I'm (laughs) answering it. Damn it. Realistically, all these musicians are his friends. And I'm positive that they've, you know, heard all or most of his albums at one point or another, but they're also going to gravitate, you know, for a lot of his contemporaries towards some of the more popular songs and, and the songs that initially meant the most to them. So in a perfect world, us diehards would have been treated to our favorite songs from cloud nine and 33 and a third and Harrison 79 and somewhere in England, which listen, would I have loved, I would have loved to hear someone take on blood from a clone. I would have loved to have heard devil's radio. There's, there's so much, but it's hard for me to be disappointed or find any fault with anything that was played, especially the Indian stuff, because a point of this concert is to showcase exactly how multifaceted George was. And you can't talk about George Harrison without talking about his, his, not his influence on Eastern in Eastern music's influence on him, you know, how he kind of introduced it in many ways yeah. to the West, what it meant to him, his relationship with Ravi Shankar, which is, as deep and as important as his relationships with Eric Clapton and Monty Python and whatnot. So, yeah, yeah. yeah there's a bunch of songs in a, in a perfect world for me. The show would have been four hours long, yeah. but that was never going to happen. It was going to be what it was going to be. And for it being that I, I can't find all that much. Fault. I'm not going to be and like, gentlemen, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Will you please welcome to the stage, after her triumphant performance in Shanghai Surprise, performing Circles, it's Madonna. Yeah, I I mean, how can I sit here and say, well, it's just a major glaring omission that nobody did, don't let me wait too long, or or like, I can't believe that nobody did all those years ago. It's like, look. Oh, I would have loved when we was fab. I would have loved that. Of course, there would have been there would have been so much. But I can't look at any song and say I wish they didn't do that. And and looking even at honey don't even honey don't. We will get to honey. I, I have some opinions <laughs> on, on that. Oh, folks, he made me. But also, but also, <laughs> you know. What was Ring? It's not like Ringo was going to pull, you know, Woman Don't You Cry For Me out of his back. We'll pocket. talk about Ringo's song choices and his limited options when we get there. Yeah. You know what, folks? And with that, we are going to jump right into the songs themselves. And boy, do we have a lot to get through. So let's talk quickly now, Sam. Right. Starting off with this gargantuan concert, we're going to begin with something both simultaneously fitting and unexpectedly small. Uh, this is. Dylan, can you please pronounce this for me correctly? Uh, Sarvashan. I've always... Sarvashan. 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 
Hello. Welcome. So this is described as a traditional prayer. And even though the Google algorithm lists this song by Ravi Shankar, from what I can gather, it seems to be a traditional song that he's transposed into a performance for George, you know, very much in the way that, say, George himself took parts of the poem from the Taoist Tao Te Ching and turned it into the inner light. For anyone looking at the runtime of this song, firstly, let me just say, you ain't seen nothing yet in terms of long Indian music in this concert. But secondly, you can calm down in this early period as only around half of the total time is taken up by Sarvasham and the second half is actually the introduction to the show by the musical supervisor, Eric Clapton. I did the bunny ear thing as if anyone isn't watching. Now, if you watch the concert, you actually get to see Ravi do a short dedication to George before they start. And for me, that's easily one of the most touching parts of the show. I wish it was on the album, to be fair. Yeah, there's there's an abridged version, I think, on the album version, but the, the full version in, in the concert video, you're right, it is so, so moving. I mean, Ravi Shankar was such an amazing, peaceful man and, and influence on this world and, and certainly knowing what him and George meant to each other. I, there's so many, I've so many times written in my notes just like you can tell how much this means to the performer. And and at this point, he's, I, I don't think he's necessarily in super ill health. He's just, he's getting older. He's not, he doesn't actually perform at this show, but you can tell that being there just means so much to him and, and having that be his moment to pay tribute publicly to his fallen friend. It's, uh, I, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. What's even better is that his daughter, who is probably younger than George was when he picked up the sitar, is already better than Harrison would ever have been on the sitar if he'd have dedicated his life to it. She is so good. Fuck me. She is such a good musician. It is insane. Should we, I mean, should we Should we segue into the second track here so we can um, talk about her a little bit? We or? have one question to ask. Let's just pull off the Band-Aid or plaster, as I would say. Dylan, you're the most musical of us here today. I play root notes on the bass guitar. And so I want to know what you think about the decision to fill this first half, first third of the show, with music that, ostensibly, the crowd were not there to see. I'm not talking about honouring George. Just you're, a pro, you're, you're programming this show. You're trying to keep butts in seats as long as possible. Is this a wise move? Would this have worked as anything other than the diehards come here. Like, you couldn't have done a tour of this, surely. I think it does work for multiple reasons. Firstly, and I think it was a wise decision. Firstly, because it was a one-off show. Mm -hmm. um, if if it was a, a multiple-time thing or a touring thing, certainly that would, first, <laughs> be a logistical nightmare trying to figure out how to... You know, uh, but, you know, I guess they did it in the 70s when he went on tour with Robbie. So what do I know? But secondly, I, I understand what you're saying about, you know, the crowd wasn't there for it. But I think that the crowd firstly was going to be accepting and ready for basically anything. I think the crowd, even if they weren't majorly looking... Did they know beforehand? The thing is, even if they didn't, for anyone to attend that show, 
to even have a, a passing knowledge of George, his history, everything about him, it should have come as no surprise whatsoever. <laughs> if there wasn't an expectation, which there should have been, mm-hmm. it shouldn't have been a surprise. And and I understand, you know, only trying to think about it from that level, but this is a tribute to him. And us saying, you know, George wouldn't have wanted this, and that may be right, but you have to imagine if you had told him, George, suck it up. We're going to have this big tribute concert to you, whether you want to be or not. You know that his stipulation would be Ravi has to be there, and this has to be a part of it because it did mean that much to him. So I think for... For this concert to stand for everything it stands for, which is trying to encapsulate everything that was George's musical and personal identity, you needed to have this there. Not only that, though, but we know that George wouldn't have cared for this concert in the first place, but he probably also would not have cared what the audience thought of it either. So (laughs) (laughs) he toured with Ravi Shankar in the 70s. Like... You can imagine, like, the Archangel Gabriel or some other deity, lesser deity figure. I think his name is pronounced Peter. No, um, George has got the A-list treatment. He gets the the Angel Gabriel. He'd be there going, look, man, they've got a concert for you downstairs. Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel Gabriel will be at the concert for for Paul. George gets the Archbishop Gabriel. Archangel, Archbishop, <laughs> no. Archbishop. But, I don't know. But yeah, I I imagine you know Gabriel would have gone to George. Look, George, there's a little show on for you downstairs. You'll love the first half, <laughs> and then like he like slips out the back when Eric com- comes on. Oh, I don't want to watch this. And this first, really firstly, that is very in line with George's sense of humor, and and secondly, I think there's. I mentioned the concert for Bangladesh earlier, and I think there are so many parallels that you can draw between this concert and Bangladesh. And how does Bangladesh start? It starts with the Eastern part of the program. It it had to be there. I don't see how you could have gotten away without doing it. And I mean, I, I would love to find the one audience member that was truly upset about it. Maybe they didn't love it. Maybe it wasn't their favorite thing. But it is a very, you know, we'll, we'll talk about both your eyes and, and Arpan here in a second. But, I mean, even, you know, you want to talk about their length, regardless of the length, like, they are powerful performances. I can only imagine what it was like witnessing it live. Also, just to be a bit pragmatic, I'm probably being a little facetious in the sense that it's not just any old dickhead going to this show the tickets are going to be made available to firstly the music intelligentsia then the london intelligentsia and then the wider london intelligentsia and then you may get a few apple scruffs in at the end it's not like you're going to get someone from county durham or scunthorpe or grimsby going Oh, I don't fucking like this. Oh, this is a bit too foreign for me. I'm going to go get a kebab and a pint, you know what I mean? I'm probably being a bit too critical in that sense. But you were correct earlier, but we should just move straight on to your eyes.
amazing how much space this one instrument fills. I mean, and, and there's the toddler in, in, in the back, certainly, but when she starts playing, it sounds like a whole orchestra. It, it is unreal. I mean, she is such a fucking star. Pardon my French. I mean, she is, you know, I, I, I think it's one of those things. I think it would be so easy for anyone to look at this with a, a negative or even like a, you know, you could look at a nepotism like, oh, it's, of course, it's Robbie's daughter. And then, you know, you want to levy any sexist criticisms again. Like, oh, let's, you know, let's see what this, you know, cute chick with the sitar can do. And she... <laughs> hey, she, dude, like, let's it, go check out the chick with the sitar. Well, that's the thing. It's, like, you know, it, it is... There are people, you know, intrinsically, mm-hmm. you know, who are going to have those sort of sexist viewpoints, let alone, you know, any racist viewpoints that anyone might have towards, you know, people of the Indian culture. And she... Shuts everyone, anyone who could or would be thinking any of those things, she shuts them the hell up. It is a tour de force. And for me, I don't even notice that it's eight minutes long. I am completely enthralled by it. I I think it is one of the most beautiful, incredible things I've ever heard. Dude, I'm not even being facetious here, because I know I'm going to make the opposite complaint with our Pam, but... I thought this was about four minutes long, genuinely. I thought it was like, it feels like it's quite in and out. And then you look at your phone, and you're like, I've got another 8.22. It absolutely flies by. If, any, if anything, the concert for George, if it does anything in terms of broadening the mind of the average Joe Bloggs, Joe Schmo, it's one of the best introductions to actual Indian music there is out there for the casual fan. Because George's music... I don't like it when they call it Indian music in public because it's not. It's it's westernized, commercialized, yeah. ostracized, anythingized. Yeah, it's pop pop music with with Eastern influence. Yeah, but this is like no, no. This is what George wanted <laughs> Revolver to sound like. Oh no, I want to tell you, it's just eight minutes of <laughs> you know, like it, if you thought the guys in dueling banjos played their instruments fast, that like, you've seen nothing yet. You've seen nothing. <laughs> The overall point I'm trying to make is is that Anuka Shankar plays her instrument better than an inbred hillbilly in Deliverance. That's the final point I'm going to make. <laughs> I'm sure that she would put that on her press junket in... Put that on the poster, folks! Print it up! Come on. <laughs> right. Next up, we have the first appearance of a George Harrison song in the concert for George, but rather wisely someone decided to take full advantage of the fact that we've got a full Indian orchestral backing here on site and ready to go. This is The Inner Light. Without 
First of all, we've got Anusha Shankar on the sitar. We could just leave the review there. I really think that's all you need to... Folks, she's, she's that good. She really is. But fortunately for ignorant Westerners such as myself, you can imagine me in a pith helmet, if you want, trying to introduce tea to some savages. But yeah, what we get in this song is not only do we have Anushka uh, Shankar on the sitar. Sorry, that was actually quite difficult for me to say, actually. Um, you, you, you nailed it. Yeah, na- nailed it. But we also get the first introduction of the second half of the show. We get a little cameo from Jeff Lynne on lead vocals. We've got Danny Harris on the back of Elvis and piano, which is really cool. We have Rajendra Prasanna on the shensei, Tanmoy Bose on the tabla, Sunil Gupta on the flute, M. Balan Shadar on the Madrigram and other unidentified musicians, etc. I was, I'm, pr- I'm pretty damn close. You nailed there. it. You I know, loved it. We're, we're a little more multicultural here in the UK. I get to say words like Gupta a little more than your average New York. Well, here. yeah, because Indian food is the only good food you have over there. If you besmirch fish and chips one more time on this show... <laughs> This was the first song that I actually recognised in the show. Let's just get that out of the way. I was a dumb guy. I was like, oh my God, something I recognise because I'm a modern consumer and all I care is Spider-Man in it, is Star Wars in it. You know, I am that kind of consumer. I watch things and I consume things that I recognise. And this shows the genius of the sequencing in this show. They knew, Dylan. They knew there'd be people in the audience going... Not fleeing, but a bit reticent, a bit standoffish. So they throw in it's a Beatles song, but it's an obscure ass Beatles B side. So they're meeting us halfway. They didn't do Within You, Without You. They didn't do Norwegian Wood, which they could have done, the more obvious ones with an Eastern influence. They did the one that is just full on, you know. They could have done Love You Too. They could have, that would have been obscure enough for me. But this is perfect choice to keep the normies awake, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I I adore so much that they performed this song. I think it's such an underrated gem in the Beatles catalog. See, I, I think it would have been cool for them to go all out and do within you without you, but but I think and, and then go into Love You Too and just yeah, yeah. but I, I thought this was the perfect bridge song between your eyes and, and our pawn. As I think especially because of how short it is. And you're right, you know, there's people there in the audience and I'm sure they're appreciating and enjoying what's going on, but yet to get that little sort of nugget of like, hey, there's this is coming. Like, just just hold on one second. Um, and, and I think Jeff is, you know, a perfect choice. I think he sounds great mm-hmm. on it. And have, having Donnie there to do the, or Danny there to do the harmonium part and, and the, the harmonies at the end. Oh, I love it so much. I love this song. I love, I love, 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 love it. It's so good. What I've always loved about the inner light is how in your face, it's that, uh, it's like a, a woodwind instrument. The Shensei, yeah. That is, that that does not pander to a Western audience at all. And yet it was a B-side on their big pre-White Album single. There's no attempt to like, you know, mix in the acoustic guitar and then it's... Uh, and it sounds absolutely immaculate. 
I, I just love how weird and different it is. And yes, there is a certain exoticism to it that is enjoyable mm-hmm. as someone from another culture. I do recognize that that is why it's quote unquote different to me. Like, you know, no music mm-hmm. should be quote unquote different. It should all just be music, but there is that yep. element to it. And it is just executed so well. It's the only one where I feel like this is George achieving what he wanted to do. All yeah. the all the other ones feel a bit like, oh, well, there was a compromise there. Well, there was a compromise there. Yeah. Well, there's a comp- I mean, I, I mean, when you go back to the revolver box set that came out recently, you hear McCartney playing with George on Indian instrumentation. So immediately diluted influence. This is the only song where George is being purely Indian and letting his his imagination run wild. And the fact that they do it so perfectly here as well is is such a beautiful moment in the film. It's done a little bit quicker. You know that you know that means that we're only a, a few years away from Paul saying, Yeah, I was actually the one who introduced the the Eastern influences, you know. Yeah, mm. if you listen to this uh, everyone says that George was the, the Eastern one, but you know, um, I actually met Ganesh once. Yeah, he was a nice guy. He really was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what, what, what were you saying before I started oh, this know, asinine you know, um, conversation? Oh my god! You know, you know, Curry, uh, Jim Max Band used to have that in the forties. <laughs> Sorry, as you were saying. <laughs> yeah, I'm just in love with this performance. I constantly Me play too. it on YouTube. It's probably one of the best Beatles covers of all time. I don't disagree. Yeah, I just hope that that quality was brushed off on the audience. And Jeff Lynne will do a perfect vocal unless specified otherwise, I think is the thing to take away from this. I mean, I'm going to get into Eric's vocal and how it's not totally Harrison-esque later on, but Jeff Lynne can reach those higher registers and give a George Harrison vocal without having to do the impression, which no one does that, thankfully, in the show. Not at all. Like, oh, if Tom Petty had attempted that, that could have been funny, though. That would have been nice um, (laughs) for uh, posterity. But, yeah, shockingly enough, this next song is 23 minutes and one second long, and trying to par this down to a single page like I try to do whenever I know we have time constraints in was very difficult. So for this one, I do indeed have two pages of notes. This is Our Pan by the late, great Ravi Shankar.
this Titanic performance, we have an absolutely mahootive group to perform it. Here we go, everyone. White Westerner tries to pronounce different <laughs> names. We have Anushka Shankar as the conductor. Then we have Sukunya Shankar uh, uh, on the vocal shloka. We have M. Balanshadar on the marindagram. We have Rajendra Prasanna on the Shanai. We have Vishwa Mohan Bhatt on the Mohan Veena. We're not able to quarter way through, folks. Then we have uh, Tamoy Bose on the tabla, Dolak Chandreskar, and Blue Ranguraman on violins, Eric Clapton on the acoustic guitar. Then we have Pedro Eustish on wood instruments. Just just wood instruments, which I find quite funny. Uh, Sunil Gupta on the flute, Anandra Chrysanthri, and O.S. Arun on lead vocals, as well as Jane Lister on the harp. There's Gurav Ma- Mazumda on the sitar. Shenish. Ooh, okay. Ooh, wow. Ooh. Okay. Shenishish Mazumda on mandolin. Ramesh Mishra on saranji. Purushana Theravaja on percussion. I feel like you're looking at the list of names as I'm as I'm, I'm not. I'm not. not. I'm, I'm drinking this in. I'm drinking this all in. Kenji Ot- Otter on the tempura and and Barry Phillips on the chair. Incredible. Barry Good Phillips. old Barry. Uh, have you... Uh, Barry Phillips ha- have, from Delhi. And it should be mentioned that Pedro Ustash, he of Jenny Wren and Hand in Hand fame. Oh, is that the same guy? Oh, wicked. Mm-hmm. Paul cannot help himself. You know that unique thing George did? Yeah, I want some of that. I definitely want some of that. Uh, we also have Emil Richards on Marimba, Partho Sarathay on Sarod, Harry Sinivasan and Sivaski Sinivasan on the Vina. Then there's the Boys and Girls Choir, courtesy of the Bahatria Vidya Bhavan, the English Chamber Choir, uh, the London Metropolitan Orchestra, and finally, Michael Kamen as the String Conductor, I'm gonna go pass out now. Just, just, just. <laughs> oh my god! And oh. and Eric Clapton on acoustic guitar. Ha! I said that one. Go check the feed. I've already Did said that again? one. No, 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 not any of this shit. But yeah, our pan is the centerpiece of the show. Not just the Indian section. It's the centerpiece of the show. It's a marvel to behold. And to quote Olivia Harrison here, each movement is about George, either in mood or is a homage paid to him. You can totally see that. There's at least 12, 13 sections of the song. It makes Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey look positively singular in its vision. Sometimes when you say a song's all over the place, you mean it's unfocused and disjointed. I don't mean that here, but it is all over the place. This is George's whole life in a song form. There are movements that sound... 100% 100% Indian. There are parts that sound uh, like a, a fusion of East and West. And then there's just a string segment where there's no Indian music whatsoever. And like, oh, okay, this is actually quite engaging. And I actually don't know what's going to happen next. I've been listening to this at work for the past three days. And I've had no other managers on shift. So I've managed to have an earphone on. So just playing our pan, you know, whilst pulling, whilst pulling points, you know. Can I have a Guinness, mate? Well, what was that? What? <laughs> so you can have a Guinness. Yeah. And it really wasn't until these last this last week that the song clicked for me. I mean that. I've heard this song dozens of times past, and I was always like, ah, can we just get to the George stuff? 
But would you have sat with it a couple of times? I know this sounds like a large ask from the public because it's a 23 minute long song. You know, you could have watched an episode of Seinfeld in the time it takes to listen to this song. What's the deal with Indian music? But once it does click, it's like an optical illusion. You can't see it the way you saw it before. You cannot see it the way everyone else sees it. And as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the most beautiful compositions ever written in tribute for someone. sectionality is a big reason why it's never really felt 23 minutes long for me. I also think it's a performance that as great as it is I think it does benefit a little bit from actually watching it. It's it's one okay. thing to to listen to it and and to marvel at the compositional greatness of it and the the excellent performances and and I've certainly done that but I find for me when I because I I've always loved it you know the first time I ever heard the show I was also watching it and so watching it for the first time I remember being enthralled and in the past when I've listened to it you know I never I shouldn't say I never skip it I certainly have skipped it before but not not because I don't love it but because you know I feel like you're yeah, like oh, I want I want to get to the George stuff but for me if I'm watching it it's a must see because it's another example of Anushka just being an absolute powerhouse conducting and and leading the band the orchestra the ensemble she is so in control she is so mesmerizing she is a force to be reckoned with um and yeah compositionally i mean it's um you know i am not a a connoisseur by any means of of rabbi shankar's discography or of indian music in general but 
I have to imagine this is one of his greatest achievements as a composer. And I think, like you said, it's not its not just a piece of Eastern Indian music. It is so much, excuse me, it is so much more than that. I think it's so apparent when you watch it and listen to it and, and keeping, keeping it in form with who George Harrison was and what he always tried to do, you know, bringing in all of these different influences I mean, he did it with Wonderwall music. He did it with songs within the Beatles. Let's marry these ideas. Let's bring them together because we are all one anyway on this earth. And I, I think you get a lot of that here. I think it's incredible. And yeah, I think we, I think we got to give a shout out to to Eric Clapton for his guitar work here at at, at the end of the song. I don't think that a lot of guitarists would be able to kind of seamlessly integrate themselves into and and certainly i think it speaks to that part of george's life you know george harrison was a guitarist he was the lead guitarist in the friggin beatles so you have to have the guitar showcased at some point in this piece and to have eric be able to stylistically fit into this piece, I, I think is miraculous. And, um, you know, Clapton, for me, the older I get, the more my opinion of Eric Clapton is, as a musician kind of changes. So growing up, my older sister is named Erica after Eric Clapton. And, and I am named Dylan after Bob. Um, so, you know, very musical family, and obviously both of my parents thought and still think highly of Clapton. So knowing that my sister was named after him, I, I didn't think about it. It was just like, oh, yeah, you know, Clapton's the best. And and then, you know, I started hearing a lot of his music, and yeah, you know, he's he's awesome. And the more that I have gotten older, the more I've kind of realized how much, in my opinion... Clapton is usually, I think, only successful when he's surrounded by people who are pushing him. You know, when you think about the people who are spray painting Clapton as God, you know, in the alleyways in England in the 60s, it's the guy who's playing with John Mayle and the Blues Breakers. And he's got to live up to the greatness of John Mayle. And then he's playing in a band with Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker where he can't... he can't afford to not suck or he can't afford to suck sorry because he's surrounded by these two titans and not only does he not suck he is absolutely incredible i mean his work with cream is some of the most amazing guitar playing i've ever heard and the same goes with blind faith same thing steve winwood ginger baker and then Derek and the dominoes surrounded by Dwayne ullman and and so many other titans when Clapton is left to his own devices, I often find that he settles into this very bland, boring, predictable, technically sometimes impressive and, and good playing, but rarely ever exciting, certainly not revolutionary. And I've just seen so many... Cla- I, I saw him live in 08, and it was probably the most disappointing show I've ever seen because <laughs> he... It was just so... And he was playing material that I loved. He was doing a lot of the Derek and the Dominoes material, 
but I've never seen a performer on stage more clearly just going through the motions. But when Clapton cares, when he really cares and he's dialed in and he's surrounded by people, especially who are pushing him, he he deserves, you know, that that's where the Clapton that people think of as God, that's where he exists. And you see that, I think, here in Arpan. He is surrounded by this unbelievable group of musicians playing a piece written by Ravi Shankar at a show that he has helped to put together for his his best friend, his fallen friend. His level of urgency, his level to commit something to tape, you know, it's never been more it's never been more important to him. And I think his his guitar work on this song is is absolutely remarkable. I uh, I you know there's there have been a lot of conversations about Clapton recently. Some of the you know most of them rooted around his his personal life and things he's done and things he said. And those are all valid conversations that need to be had. And I certainly have my opinions. But solely speaking on him as a musician, and we'll certainly talk about him throughout all the rest of these songs. But I think his work on this song in particular is is really really remarkable. Most of the artists have felt because they're just coming to do George covers, and then Ravi rocks up with a twenty-three-minute <laughs> tribute. Like I could, I could bring like Joe Brown in the dressing room. Like, what rhymes with Harrison? Quick, <laughs> Harrison, uh, you could fill a whole garrison. <laughs> Come on, what, what else rhymes? I, I wonder if Ringo had written "Never Without You" at this point. Anyway, we'll get to Ringo later, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't... It goes without saying, I mean, Ravi Shankar is, is as celebrated as he is for a reason. He is known as, as the leading... You know, when people think of Eastern Indian music, 
they they think of Ravi Shankar in the same way that when you think of jazz, you think of Miles Davis, you think of Bob Marley with reggae, you think of B.B. King with blues, and whether or not those are your favorite or you think they're the best people in those genres is, is another thing, but Ravi Shankar has that title for a reason. It's not just his performance, it is his composition, it's his influence, it's everything, and yeah, what he achieved with this piece is, is it's legendary. It is absolutely legendary. I'd love to hear some of like the Indian music fans from the late 60s, early 70s go, oh, bloody Rafi, he was just the one that that stupid white boy found. You know, this guy, this guy's the real sitar yeah, who's, yeah, who's the, the Salieri of, uh, <laughs> of Indian music? <laughs> All right. If oh. someone's listening to this, we need to know oh, if they know funny. anything. That's we so need funny. to know. Like, so like, there's some guy going, and then, and then Ravi Shankar goes, "Yeah, it's really good. That is." And then I'll add this like that. Yeah, great scene. If you haven't seen that movie, folks, I'm not even going to recommend it. You see. You you um, can really tell too at, at at the the end of of this scene. And again, this is—you really need to see the movie to get this effect. But to to see Olivia and Danny's reaction to this, you can tell how much this meant to them. And, and the and the brief backstage shots too of of them coming—you can tell. And and that's the other reason why you know I I don't think you could get rid of this or why you couldn't have done this. Everyone backstage on stage is so in awe of what just happened you know regardless of whether or not you are versed in indian music whether it is your favorite type of music you know whether you were anticipating on sitting through it through a 23 minute performance it doesn't matter you if you were there you just witnessed something absolutely incredible and you really see that on the look in their face and it meant so so much to the family when Ravi spoke of this song, he said, I used to call him J-Rad instead of George, so I made the whole com- composition of Arpan on that J-Rad Harisan, um, George mm-hmm. Harris, J-Rad Harisan, yeah. that means J-Rad loved Krishna, he gave the world so many beautiful songs, the great song we are running today, the great song we are paying homage to. I hate to be cynical, Dylan. I think if they released a two-vinyl version of this at the same time as the three-disc one and they just put out all the Western stuff, I feel like fans probably would have aired towards the two-disc one. And I'm not even... And I'm sure. saying that I agree with everything you've just said and more, but as you know, an Alan Klein-type figure in the back of my head, I'm just thinking... Come on, come on, let's get the hits out. Well, yeah, it's 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 their loss, and 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 I and I completely I, I don't disagree with that either, and I, I cannot stress it enough. I do think this this song in particular benefits greatly from the visual aspect. I mean, I just admitted there have been times where I've I've skipped through it, you know, listening to the album because it is a commitment. Um, but you don't generally sit down to watch the concert for George when it's not a commitment. You might put on the album when you're just driving around or you want to listen to something. So, so it's a, it's a little bit easier to have that mindset with it. Um, but you know, 
in a lot of ways, it's not about that. Uh, this this composition, this performance, isn't fan service, and it's not supposed to be. So yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with with what you're saying, but it doesn't take away from how remarkable it is, dude. I'm sure if Harrison had that kind of control over multimedia, he'd say, "I don't even want them to be able to skip it. I want them to have to sit through it to see my songs." And I don't think I'm too far off base with that. Pressing forward, we have something known as the comedy interlude, something that will not be at the concert for Paul. This is a couple of performances <laughs> from Monty Python. That's all of them, because they were all alive and well and fit and sound of one body at this point. We have Eric Idle, Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones, Michael Palin. And also we have Neil Innes, of course. Neil Innes was there. He was there. He's, a, he's an honorary Python. That As he should have been. Yep. Uh, you got Carol Cleveland from Faulty Towers, who was also John Cleve's wife at one point. Uh, you have the Fred Tomlinson singers. No idea who they are. Leaping from tree to tree as they float down the mighty rivers of British Columbia. The giant redwood. The larch. The mighty Scots pine. The smell of fresh cut timber. The crash of mighty trees. With my best girl by my side, we'd sing, sing, sing. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the lavatory. On Wednesdays I go shopping and have butter scones for tea. He cuts down trees, he eats his lunch, he goes to the lavatory. Did you see the other face during this performance, Dylan? I remember the this, first this, time. It's a Bernstein Bears moment for me. This is genuinely I was like, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> I remember the first time I watched it. I li- literally, I was 12 years old and thinking, that kind of looks like Tom Hanks. Is that Forrest Gump? <laughs> but it, but it can't be. Why? Would, and and certainly it wasn't until years later when I learned how how close George and, and especially Olivia were with Tom and and his wife Rita Wilson. They, they're close family friends, so I'm sure that's how he became a part of it. But if you don't know that, and I think probably a lot of people don't, it, it is sort of like what in God's name? It's like when you watch The Last Waltz and Neil Diamond shows up out of nowhere. You're like, <laughs> huh? Like, you got Bob Dylan and Neil Young and, and Joni Mitchell and Neil friggin' Diamond. Who, and not not a complete knock on Neil Diamond. Uh, that's another conversation for another time. But it does seem a little out of place at first glance. Yeah, it'd be like Michael Bublé appearing at the concert for Paul. It's like, oh. Singing my Valentine. Ugh, okay, yeah. let's see where this goes. Oh, I can't wait to hate the cover of my... Of- my love in the concert for Paul when that eventually does happen. I'll be there in the crowd because I'll get a ticket. I mean, I'm not stealing his music anymore if he's dead. So NPL will finally acknowledge that I'm a real person and that I'm helping. You can, if you can get a ticket, you know, that's what I said. You listen, when, when uh, Zeppelin had their reunion show at the O2, I was like, Oh, I'm going. There's no <laughs> way I won't be going And Spoiler. And I, I did not make didn't it. Go. <laughs> 
No, no my again. plan is for the concert for Paul to get two tickets and then mention that I've got a spare ticket on the Twitter and then watch my Twitter explode. <laughs> watch them explode and then watch it explode further when you say, just kidding, my friend Dylan is coming over and we will be going together. I've got three tickets. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, um, but, I, you know, it was it was so... Uh, it was so appropriate to have Monty Python there at the show. I mean, obviously, close friends and colleagues with George. And and George's sense of humor was so integral to, to who he was as a person. So just like you had to have the the Indian music, you had to have... The, you know, this this uh, covers both his sense of humor and and the handmade films portion of his life in 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 one fell swoop you get two birds stoned at once no you know you can imagine eric being like right i have to I have to honor all of these things yeah uh, <laughs> and that was probably the top five things you've got to honor indian music number one got that ticked off you know all yours anushka anushka yeah yeah you know you've got all that done i had to do that but i'm sorry <laughs> Um, very good, very good. And then we're going to do all the Beatles stuff and the solo stuff, but it, you are right. It's like, I'm glad they didn't do like a scene from the life of Brian or something cringeworthy <laughs> like that. You know, they didn't do any of the Monty Python sketches. They kept it musical, which is yeah. very fitting. You know, they could have done any number of songs. They could have done, um, isn't it awfully nice to have a penis? Isn't it awfully great to have a dong? Or like uh, the yeah. universe song... Or every done, you know, always look on the bright side of life. So. That was the one that I thought they would go for, and I think it shows a bit of restraint that they didn't. Like they performed tracks that were Harrisonless. These were ones that George would yeah. have liked, because as we know, A-list artists hate anything they're involved with. They, 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 they just do. So George would have liked to have seen "Sit on My Face" and the Lumberjack song. Yeah. Plus, the Lumberjack yeah. song is infused with Michael Palin's speech that we referenced at the start of this episode. It's the only time when the show goes a bit solemn, but it's like, okay, we'll we'll do solemn, but through Michael Palin. <laughs> so it's not really solemn at all. It's actually really upbeat and funny and stupid. It is. Well, and, and I think it is, it's more touching than it has any right to be at the end of the Lumberjack song when they all turn around and salute him. Like there, <laughs> there's no way. I mean, I, I mean, it's impossible for me to watch this show and not get emotional to, to some degree. And there are certain moments that get me every time there's certain moments that where it's like, you know, sometimes I watch it and something new catches me. And, and genuinely, the last time I watched it, it really like kind of hit me, you know, af- after these two songs with them turning around and saluting to me, there's something about it that just really, really got me. I, I, I don't know what it was, but may- maybe it's just because, yeah, you know, it is the one point in the show where everything isn't so serious for a second and they get the job done. They they do these two songs. They 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 do them great. You know the lumberjack song. You know the the original performance can never be matched in terms of irreverence. But but it's still so fun. It's so passable. And you know what can you say about "Sit on My Face"? You know just a gorgeous song of yearning and unselfish love. Um, <laughs> and 
but for for both of those songs to be they're done so well the the audience eats it up they they do exactly what they're supposed to do and when they turn around and salute him it just kind of has this feeling of like we got you buddy like we we did it don't worry like you're in good hands so there's a quick quote from Marco Paley that I managed to find in the coffee table book for the concert for George. I didn't buy it, but thankfully they post entire screenshots of it on George Harrison's website. The opening speech was Terry's idea. I wrote it up and tried it out on him and it seemed quite funny and the best thing to do because we were constantly thinking of George up there and what he would have wanted and wouldn't have wanted. It's the, It sort of dealt with what the whole evening was. It absolutely wasn't about people saying, this man changed my life, this wonderful person, this God, this saint, which would have been completely wrong. There was a love of George and a love of his music and the love of his friends, but no one actually got up and said, I love him more than dot, dot, dot. I thought it was brilliant, this or the other. George would have hated that. So I thought, I'll write all these that really would have made George squirm. And we can undercut that and go into the Lumberjack song. So it's nice that at least one group of people in the entire show verbally at least mention the metatextual, what did George want, what did not George want? And whereas Eric would have gone for what George would have wanted, it's nice to see that there were some acerbic British dickheads <laughs> going, yeah. actually, Absolutely. no, uh, he would have rather of us uh, called him a twat on stage, actually. Or a twat for my listeners out there. Yeah. I couldn't have asked for more than this, really. They really nail it. I've always been a huge Monty Python fan. I love that quote in Family Guy when Meg goes, I'm a girl, I don't even like the good Monty Python. <laughs> but That's yeah, funny. Yeah. <laughs> They've always been an influence on my sense of humour and my style. Of course, George was a huge Goons fan, and then that evolved into Monty Python. Mm-hmm. We're so lucky that they that they bothered to do this they could have just skipped it over they really could have and yet we have this i don't think they would have though this this was locked in day one do you reckon yeah i mean you're totally right they could have but but i have to imagine that the second that it was brought up to them they said yep say no more we're there you know we it's we gotta pay Pay tribute to our boy George. Dude, Monty Python is like asking Led Zeppelin to license your song for a commercial. It just doesn't happen all the time. So that made this even more special. Okay, now, folks, we have now hit the 40-minute mark in this concert film. We've had our daily dose of culture, and now it is time for us to stop all those annoying things like learning and expanding our horizons and opening our minds up to new experiences and instead indulge in what we've already enjoyed. Jean Jackets rejoice. It is now time for us to delve into the plethora of George Harrison covers and we're going to start with I Want to Tell You.
start off with an obscure number? This is the best concert film ever, surely? The fact that they don't start out with... I mean, logically, you start off with a mid-tier hit, right? You know what's funny, though? I think it's the perfect song to kick things off. You know, the, the intro riff, which is obviously faded in on the original recording, it really sets the scene nicely. I think that Clapton and the other guitarists dialed in their tones perfectly. And it's funny because I, I agree with you, but then I start thinking, I'm like, well, you know, and obviously Patty and the Heartbreakers do Taxman anyway, but even if the house band had done it, I'm like, would that have, it works so well as an album opener, would it have worked as well as a concert opener? And what other of his Beatles compositions yeah. would have worked at, I mean, you could have started with If I Needed Someone, but that doesn't feel like an opener. I don't know. I, I think that opening lick to I Want to Tell You starts it off so well. And, and, and even same thing, like Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth starts off the album great. But because of its, you needed to start with something that's got a bit of punch to it. Mm-hmm. And I Want to Tell You has that much more than Give Me Love does. And I mean, I also think it's such an unbelievably underappreciated song. I often see... I want to tell you described as one of the lower or lesser points on Revolver, which I couldn't disagree with more. Uh, it's it's genuinely, genuinely one of my favorite Beatles songs. And I th- and, and I, I think it may partly be influenced by its performance here at this concert. Like, I, I think that its performance here really has always spoken to me and that has influenced my love of the original version as well. But I think it's a great song. Um and everyone performs it here great. The only thing, the only criticism is that none of the backing vocalists do the vocalese at the end. The, I got time. No one does that. But that's the only thing wrong with it. And we know we know they could have because uh, what's his name? The backing vocalist for the Heartbreakers. He is no Scott for, Thurston. He is no for no perfect on his. He's clearly the beetle head in the Heartbreakers. I'll put money on oh, that yeah, right now. And the back of those he does on his two songs are so perfect. Like, just can we just get him on stage? Can we just get because he he can hit those high notes. He really can. Yeah. What an opening to the show. What I love about the riff that I want to tell you is that. It's got that kind of riff that makes you go, hang on, it's that one. Like, you know what I mean? We're like, yeah. Those four notes, your brain doesn't register. But then when you hear that, boom, like that, those, you hear a floor tom and a bass drum, boom, and the piano comes in. It's one of the best songs of Revolver. And there's such an excitement to it. And there's an excitement and an immediacy for the the sequencing and the fact that it was chosen. You were so right. If any of the next two songs were the opener, it'd be like, eh. and if they'd have gone with yeah. like, don't bother me, it'd be like, wow, we've, <laughs> we've wasted we've wasted time here. Because I mean, even yeah. a contrarian like me isn't going to sit here and say, I want, don't bother me in this show, unless it was entirely chronological. Well, definitely not to definitely not to kick the the show off. No, brown, 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 I mean, only George could sing that as well. I don't think anyone's that depressed on earth to sing that song, other than George. But like you said earlier, unless proven otherwise, Jeff Lynne's going to sing it perfectly. 
Great job. <laughs> he is, though. He is. And I love how Jeff Lynn's face, because of his giant shades and beard and hair, he's almost like, you know when you've got a villain in a movie and you need him to have a faceless horde for the good guys to kill off? Orcs, demons, monsters, if you will, that always have, or if they're human scale, they have a mask on to hide their humanity. I feel like that's Jeff Lynn. Is he happy? Is he sad? I can't tell. It's just... But it's funny because I feel like his music and personality... Is the opposite of his look. (laughs) Well, it's just, it's so... I've never gotten anything from Jeff Lynn other than positivity and kindness. And and humility to a degree, too. And it's funny because he's this superstar musician and producer. He's, He's produced and written some of the most famous music of all time. But I still... I still sense that he's just this very humble person. And you really see that here at this concert and he sings the hell out of the song and, and Eric and, and the backing vocalists do an excellent, excellent job as well. It really is something to marvel at. And just going back to Jeff Lynn, the fact that he produced so many George albums shows that he knows the music deeper than even Eric will have. Like Eric might be able to mm-hmm. play it and recreate it, but, Jeff Lynn's there to go, no, but this is why it works. This is why this mm-hmm. goes with that. And maybe that, like, I think Jeff Lynn might be underrated in terms of his input on the show. Because Eric. I was just about to say that. Although, please say it more eruditely than I was about to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just going to say, you know, I, I think that when you consider the role that a musical producer plays or a musical director, uh, you know, it, it's a role that realistically as as i think any director could say of of any medium i i don't think it's ever it can rarely ever be one singular vision even the director of a film you know they are going to get input or or at least influence from the camera operators you know from the other people on set who are also seeing it from so many different viewpoints and lenses and from a musical perspective, you know, Eric is a is a great musician. I'm sure he was responsible for saying, these are the people I'm going to get. These are how we're going to kind of lay out the arrangements and whatnot. But yeah, Jeff has such, probably more so than anyone on that stage, yeah, an intrinsic knowledge of this is how things need to be layered. You know, this is the balance we need between the acoustics and the electrics. You know, if these parts are going to be doubled, this is how many people need to be playing them. This is where they need to be played. I, I would not be surprised if, if Jeff Lynn played, if not as big a role as, as Eric did in getting it all together. He, he's on stage for as many songs as Eric is, you know, he's, he has a huge, huge say in that. There's zero doubt in my mind. And and yeah, like you said, his understanding of the Beatles and George's music is is unparalleled. I mean, I think there's multiple reasons why he was tapped to, you know, do Free as a Bird in Real Love. And, and certainly the main reason being George saying he wouldn't do it unless Jeff did it. But, but, but I also think that Paul and Ringo had to know, like, look, this guy, he clearly gets us. I mean, that's the knock that people will have on Jeff Lynn. It's like, Oh yeah. The guy that was always trying to do the Beatles thing that is born out of his, his knowledge of it and, and his love for it. I mean, there's no doubt that Eric loved the Beatles, but 
Eric was more of a contemporary and, and he was, and he was a friend at that time, you know, certainly he loved that music and he grew up with it, but while the Beatles were still creating, so was Eric. Eric was doing Cream and, and Blind Faith and eventually Derek and the Domino. Jeff Lynn was studying those records to a degree. I don't want to say that Eric never did, but certainly that he didn't at the time. Yeah, there's there was nobody at that show with as deep an appreciation and love and and knowledge of the material than Jeff Lynn. I, I would I would bet money on it. It's very much like a film. You want Eric Clapton, the competent musician, to direct it and keep things moving, but the guy who finishes it off and the guy who, you know, puts up the experience is actually the producer. And yeah. that's what Jeff Lynn is. And that's probably why there hasn't been something like this. Because yeah. you've got two big names in those production roles. It's not like, oh, it's Eric Clapton and X producer, blah, blah, blah. The only yeah. the, the only hired hand is the filmmaker, the actual director of this. And I believe, thinking back to last episode's notes, he's got some connection to George as well. But, sure, you know, you need these two. Well, yeah. It's, 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 it's musically based, you know, so you need... Eric but even and- even you bring in the parallel in of, you know, maybe Eric... Yeah, Eric's the director and, and, and Jeff is the producer. Well, that's exactly right. Because as you said, Jeff Lynn is the producer of the album. Mm-hmm. So he knows he's going to get all these multi-tracks. He, he knows what he's going to need and want to make sure that the final audio product is, is going to be what it is. So there, there's absolutely no way that he didn't have a, a huge say in how things went. Right. For our next song, it's time for Eric to finally get a little spotlight. Cause this is, if I needed someone. <laughs> guitar and right away i just want to point out how much restraint they are showing here by not just diving into these quote-unquote hits like eric's in charge here. he could have just given himself while my guitar gently whips right now and yet we are just in the mid-tier george which is nice we've not gone for bottom of the barrel you know we've skipped don't bother me but we are wonderfully inhabiting mid-tier mid-knowledge mid-obscurity george harrison not quite a deep cup, so everyone in the audience is, is going to be happy. There's, there's, there's enough for everyone going on here. And, you know, it's fan service, but fan service done right. It doesn't feel pandering or or snivelling or anything like that. It's just, oh, everyone loves this George Harrison song. Let's put it in. Dylan, take the floor with this one. 
what are your thoughts here? And is there more is there more of an appropriate song that exists for Eric Clapton to do than the song that is basically a pastiche of the birds? <laughs> yeah, and um, and I will say originally in my notes I had written down a lot about how I didn't think that Eric was the right choice to sing this, and and I I ultimately ended up. I ended up deleting it because I like watching and listening to it again. It's not at all that he sings it poorly. I, I think he sings it quite well, you know, however, Eric Clapton, I mean, there, yes, to answer your question. Yes, there are better songs and, and you see it later in the show when he sings certain songs that I think he sounds fantastic on Eric Clapton, in my opinion is, is a good singer i would not say that he's a great vocalist i think he has moments of greatness but yeah this is a very it's a very american song if i needed someone because the birds are a very american group and i think there's a there's a fluidity to the melody that obviously i think george handled well when, when he sang it that I don't want to say that Eric doesn't have it because his his vocal is perfectly fluid, but it's just not. If I had to pick the lead vocalist for the song, I, I just I wouldn't have picked George Harrison. Or sorry, I would pick George. <laughs> Harrison. Hey, come on! I would, I would not have picked Eric Clapton. Um, but it's just it's get not Jeff bad. In. Just get Jeff in. Come on. Well, that's that's the thing. It's like, well, you can't have Jeff Ward. I literally yeah. wrote the same thing. I'm like, honestly, I probably would have chosen Jeff Lynn, but but he just saying, I want to tell you, so you can't have him do two in a row. But but Eric does sing it perfectly fine, and he's aided by the excellent background vocalists, like all of Eric Clapton's solo work is. I'm sorry. Probably, I know he's second only to Joe Cocker in terms of mediocre vocalist who is uh, elevated by female black singers who actually know what they're doing with vocals. You've 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 got the the female singers. You've you've got Danny there. You've got Jeff Lynne there. You've got other guys in the band, and and they all sound great. It's it's a very solid performance. I do think it's I do think it's great. Yeah, it's it, it, there's so few Beatles songs that I think you can really call obscure especially songs from rubber soul you know one of their most (laughs) celebrated records but yeah you know when you think of george's titanic beatles compositions if i needed someone is maybe the seventh or eighth song that you would Mm -hmm. name you know there's so many other ones that come before it but it's a great song it's a very solid performance great bass playing from dave bronze on this one uh, who plays bass throughout most of the show he really nails the the McCartney sort of tone and ethos on this one. Yeah, I have very little negative to say about it. Like th- that's the thing. It's like I feel like we can we can talk about you know was Clapton the right guy? This and this and this, but it is kind of splitting hairs because are, are you going to say it's bad? No, it's it's not bad. It's just it could have maybe been better with somebody else singing it, but it's perfectly serviceable and good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, I couldn't call it anything other than pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's still just as reverent and as spiritual as the rest of the show, and the emotion's still there. But that emotion is carrying the track, as far as I'm concerned. Sure. Eric's take on the vocals is interesting. I just don't think he has the right register. He doesn't have the right... 
he can't hit the notes the right way. Like he's technically hitting them, but he's not hitting them in the same spirit. It all feels a mm-hmm. little middle of the road, mediocre. Like the vocal register is just not there, especially during the ahs, right there. Ah, it just doesn't hit that. Ah, like he doesn't really get. It's just like ah, it doesn't have the same kind of beauty to yeah. it. And this is a guy who no, can't I, sing I, anything I at all. And the whole thing, especially with those female backup vocalists, it just sounds like Lay Down Sally or something like that. You know, I mean, or mm. White Room or that other I Feel Free. It just, it's got mm-hmm. that kind of feel rather than... This one has always kind of been on the lower end of this concert for me. It's not a skip, sure. but it's like, no, okay, no. you know, this is just part of the show. To call it filler would be very disingenuous of me, so I'm not going to yeah. do that. But probably because my expectations were so high, it only somewhat met them. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. And before I go into a, a proper poor nothing rant that this song doesn't deserve, we'll move ever onward to probably the most obscure Beatles song that was on this when I first watched it, which is Old Round Shoe. <laughs> rendition we have gary brooker on lead vocals and electric piano and dylan please don't shout at me but how bad is it that i had absolutely no idea who gary brooker was until i saw this film (laughs) is he a massive name is he up there with like freddie mercury and john bonham or is this someone who i could be forgiven for not knowing by name um i mean I, well, I assume you know Wider Shade of Pale, but yes. I can maybe forgive you for not knowing the lead singer of Procol Harum's name. Um, I, I wouldn't say he's a, a top-tier celebrity. I, I suppose I can slightly forgive you, but, but ever <laughs> so slightly. No, I mean, the fact that he sung the song that Paula Linda met at in the Bag of Nails Club, that's his biggest claim to fame for me, but... For those of you out there who might also not know who Gary Brooker is, he did a lot of the piano on All Things Must Pass. And basically, he did a Ringo where he'd like he'd appear on one song on every Harrison Solo album pretty much yep. right till the end. Fortunately, despite the fact that a complete fool such as myself did not know anything about him, didn't stop Mr. Brooker from delivering one hell of a performance here. Whilst Jeff Lynne had proven himself to be a very accurate and reliable George translator, and Eric's been basically playing it safe, 
Brooker here is the first one to kind of break the mold and make the song his own and feel like he's doing his own thing, having fun with the material and just going for it. Like he really just, I want to love that. He's got a nice gravel to his voice. There's a real energy and uh, momentum to it all. And this is also the first time that we're really introduced to the horn section of the band. Like, you know, you you can see all these Western orchestral guys kind of just sat there for the last 40 minutes going, yeah, yeah. But then you go, and this is the first example of many George Harrison songs that are seem quite small, seem quite, you know, these are designed for four people to play in the back of a club somewhere. And yet Eric's like, no, we're going to do the big band version of All Brown Shoe. And it's insane how every one of these small, personable George Harrison songs, Old Brown Shoe, Isn't It a Pity, For You Blue, you just dial it up to 11 and some, and the song still works in the exact same way. It doesn't feel bloated or overstuffed or overripe. It's like, oh, cool, this is just a bigger, louder version of Old Brown Shoe. And with Gary Brooker being the accomplished pianist he is, and this is one of the, the many George Harrison, I'm a lead guitarist, but I wrote it on piano kind of songs, it 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 just works perfectly, you know. Unless he'd have done something like Circles, there couldn't have been a more keys-based song for him to do, really. Um, maybe yeah. Savoy Truffle, but yeah. Well, what about you, dude? How do you how do you how do you feel Gary Brooker's done being the first mold breaker in this show? Well, I think he does fantastic. Um, I think it's I think it's really cool they pulled this song out. Um, yeah, not a not a completely unknown song because yeah, I imagine that its inclusion on the 1967 to 1970 compilation got a, its its fair share of spins, but. Uh, yeah, definitely far from the first song that most Beatles fans would think of thinking about George's compositions. But yeah, Gary Brooker really lays into it, but his piano playing and his vocals are fantastic. And I also love that the aforementioned horn players, you got Tom Scott and Jim Horn, both of who worked with George before, but Tom Scott in particular, he worked very closely. I mean, he... He played with uh, the L.A. Express, who George hired for the Dark Horse record. And then uh, he was an integral, integral part of 33 and a third as well. He was essentially, in some ways, I think, the band leader for those sessions, too. So really, really great to have them there. Um, their their presence is fantastic. Uh, also, two things about this. Firstly, massive shout out to, to the drummers. This song it is not easy to play. It's called a double time shuffle. So for all you erudites out there, you know, there's, there's straight time in their shuffle. Straight time is your one, two, three, four, bum, 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 bum. and then you have a swing or a shuffle. Da, 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 da. This is called a double time because it's, you're, you're basically, uh, so instead of one and two and three and four and it's one two three four bump but you know all all punk rock beats are double time so this is a shuffle that is not an easy beat to play and it's especially not easy for two drummers to play while matching up on so they do a <laughs> hell of a job uh and the in the last note that I've written about this I love that 
they not only kept it in uh, in the second bridge when Gary and, and Eric are singing, and this is actually a song that had Brooker not been there, this would have been well-suited for Clapton, I think, and, and he does a great job on the, the backing vocals. But in the second bridge, they, they sing two different words at the same time. I forget exactly what it is. Not only did they keep it in, but in the film version, they actually zero in on it. It shows them singing it, and they kind of look at each other, and Eric smiles, and it shows the human element uh, of it. You know, at the end of the day, there has to be a human element to rock and roll for it to work, and especially when you're talking about someone like George, who was so spiritual and considered all that it meant to be alive and to be a human. I love that they kept it in, which... Yeah, I think goes to your point. It's like I, it, if there was any, you know, Wings Over America style post production, it was minimal. Um, yeah, but o- overall, fantastic performance. And yet, it sounds huge, and it, it, but not, uh, but it's not distracting, and it's not unnecessarily bombastic. It just sounds fucking great. It's so good. Going back to radio, you know when you've got a lot of comedians on a radio show and they know to turn the mics down when people are laughing. I feel like they do that mm-hmm. a lot on this where there's shouting and there's powerful vocals, but it's way back from the mic over here. So, you, you know, it's it's really not dominating anything. And like, yeah. there's about 57 guitars on this track and they're all, <laughs> they're on like two or three, most of them in terms of volume. It's there just to kind of create this Spectre-esque wall of sound that, you know, Jeff Lynne manages to do without shooting someone in the face. Now, just going back to that second bridge, I hear Judy, Judy don't. That's what I hear. The, the Judy, the Judy don't, Judy. Uh, oh, wait, no, is that, is that not what you're on about? What, no, I'm a, hold on, let me, let me look at the, the Just going back to the Judy don't thing, I'd never known what they were saying. I just heard, Luda, Luda. But apparently it's Judy, Judy don't. So which is terribly like early rock and roll. But uh. I don't know. I don't. I, I was thinking of the um, you know that I may appear to be imperfect. My love is something you can't, can't reject. reject. Yeah. But at one point, I, I think it's during the if you and me should get together. I, I, I think uh, Eric, Eric sings me or there's something that they miss and you can see in the film they look at each other and kind of give each other a a knowing smile and uh but yeah god it just this is a song i've always i've always liked old old brown shoe just fine and but it's it's there there's like a group of like five or six beatles songs in the last like four or five years have grown on me even more like exponentially and old old brown shoe is one of them and, and fantastic performance Incredible, absolutely incredible. And I just love how it breaks up the sequence of events that we have. This isn't Eric and Jeff now, this is the rest of the show. Now we're going to be introducing lots of other people and you can enjoy them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not getting that with the next song though. We are going right back to Jeff Lynn. And this is Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth.
guess this is Jeff Lynne coming back Mr Flaming Pie himself and first of all just in terms of the style I was so glad that they included this song in the set because you know whilst it was a hit it wasn't the biggest hit ever and you know there was always going to be a, a, a glut of all things must pass and they could have just done Beatles and all things must pass and end it on I'll see you in my dreams everyone would have been completely happy I don't think the reviews would have gone down to four stars or anything but the fact that we get just little snapshots of George's solo career like this really does bring it in and make it feel a little more thought out and caring you know we haven't begun the solo George with all things must pass on we've begun with one of his other solo like just that as a statement I feel is quite important Mm-hmm. Of course, the song itself, we've already discussed, Jeff Lynne is so close to George, it only makes sense that he knows how these songs work. He pitches so much more naturally towards other people on this bill. And he also brings a softness and a vulnerability, especially that works for this song that George was yeah. so good at. Like, I know this sounds stupid, dude, but whenever I, like, there are several songs on every album that I'm like, oh, I love that song, but I kind of forget about it until I play the album again. And this is one of those songs where I'm like, oh my God, I love this one. I forgot about this. This is absolutely great. And, mm-hmm. you know, it reminds me of how emotional and, and immediately melodic a lot, of George, a lot of George's music was. Yeah, it's an absolute runaway success again. Come on, Dylan. We all know you love this one. Just come right out and suck this song's dick with me. Let's just double team this motherfucker. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's, that's one way to think about this song. It's a gore, it's a gorgeous song. I'm so happy they played it. And yeah, you know, again, it's it, it could be very easy for us to to lament the the lack of solo stuff outside of all all things must pass. Um, but at least they got this one. And yeah, not only was it a number one hit, this was one I think that George really did love and, and meant a lot to him. It had to be played. This is not an easy song to sing. There are a lot of vocal runs in it, like, oh, my Lord. You know, lots of, a lot of sustained notes. Please <laughs> take hold. That yeah, stuff yeah. is not easy. And, and Jeff does a, a pretty decent job with it. And, and not only does he do a good job of tapping into sort of the subdued nature of the song, the whole band does. And, and like you said, there's 106 guitars on stage. There's about 400 musicians total. But at no point does it sound like anyone is overplaying or or playing unnecessarily. Everyone is tapped into what it needs to be. Really, my main takeaway is, is just that for just one minute, sometime in my life, I'm 31 years old. I'm hoping to have you know, close to, to 50 more years left on this planet for just one minute in that time. I want to be as happy as Ray Cooper is playing percussion. Um, 
on this song or at any point that like watching him play tambourine on this song and, and throughout the whole show is just, man, that it doesn't get better than that. It's uh so that, that's what I want for myself. Um, but yeah, to- total, total success. No- nothing bad to say about it. When Scorsese makes a documentary about you, bro, I'll be like Ray Cooper at the start and I'll go to talk about Dylan. So trivially, I just, I just can't, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's inevitable that Scorsese will do so. Uh, but you'll be played by Joe Pesci. He was a good musician. Good musician. How? How? Huh? Like he was here. He was like here to play for you. It's a good Pesci for yeah. a Brit. Why don't you come home and settle down? I settle down every night, man. I come home with you. I love you. Guy looks one way. Guy goes the other way. The guy's like, the fuck do you want? This is why none of these podcasts are ever going to be under two hours. No, <laughs> no, definitely not. We also get the string section for the first time with this song just on its own. Utterly divine. And, you know, we've got to hear horns for Old Brown Shoe and we get to hear strings here. And I feel like Eric's doing that thing that we see in another concert film, Stop Making Sense with Talking Heads, introduce guitar in one song. Next song, you introduce drums. Next week. But he's not doing that with the main band because that's too obvious. But with the backing band, you know, we'll have a little bit of string, a little bit of horn, mm-hmm. a little bit of percussion. And then by the time we get to the end of the show with things like wah, wah and wah, my guitar, yeah. it's just... Right, have we got the kitchen sink yet? <laughs> Throw it in! Throw it in! But yeah, um, this one has always been important to me. One of my earliest relationships, a girl got me a single version of this with the ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp on the B-side. And so it's one of the first George solo songs that I gave a shit about. And, you know, hearing it there... It, in, in this, that was the B-side to Give Me Love? I believe it's the Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp. Oh, no, yeah. Or was it Let It Roll? Or those the same song? Those might be the same. Well, it's just interesting because Give Me Love is on Living in the Material World and then Frankie Crisp is from All Things Must Pass. Have I got this entirely? I think like most things in your life, you have it entirely wrong. Oh, it's Miss Odell? Oh, bollocks. I've got that entirely well, I can see why you would get that. Uh Yes, those up. are similar acoustic George Harrison songs. I'm taking half a point for that. Miss Odell, Sir Frankie Crisp. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. That, no, no, I suck there. I suck. Um, I've written a lot of notes today that I've just not bothered to touch on at all. You're doing great. Although I have seen one little quote here from myself. The solo was also really cool as it seems that they've done with two simultaneous guitars with different effects and create this really trippy sound. God, aren't I such a great writer? Look at you, journalist. Owen Ling is just so proud of me right now. Beware of Darkness. Let's move on to the next song. Come on. Following on, we have Beware for Darkness. You guessed.
Yes, Eric Clapton is back doing lead vocals and rhythm guitar for his performance. Uh, of course, it makes sense because Eric was on this song on the original All Things Was Pass all those years ago. I feel like this is a stronger Clapton performance overall, far more appropriate for his voice and register. He's using the backing vocalists, or at least relying on them way less here. Mm-hmm. And he even got a few emotive moments out of me. Like when he hits those lines, in your fingertips. Like I was doing like, oh wow, okay, this is this is special. This is really special. Um, yeah, I, I wrote down the same thing that this this one really seems to mean a lot to him, and and it show it really shows through. I mean, it's kind of unremarkable in terms of the wider set list. Again, a bit like if I need someone, but as general performances go, it's pretty spot on, and I'm not going to sit here and claim that it's anything other than magnificent. I don't feel like I've got to defend Eric Clapton much here, which is which is fun. <laughs> As we normally do. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is something that he would have performed on the Nightly One tour, or at least rehearsed. This is something that he's physically played with a lot of these bandmates dozens of times right now. And whilst his voice is still kind of unsuited for the material, does strain in certain parts, the emotion and the overall skill in putting it all together does carry it past that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he I, does. I, this is the upper end of mediocre for me, dude. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, it's the, such an incredible... the lower end of good. The lower end of good. Well, that's the thing. Again, like, we're, we're splitting... We're splitting hairs. I mean, like, I, it, it's so fun. It's like when you talk about the Beatles catalog as a whole, like, what's your least favorite Beatles album? It's like, well, shit, my least favorite Beatles album would be my favorite album by so many other groups and and beware of darkness i think is just such an incredible song and it's performed so well so yeah how how can you say it's anything short of absolutely fantastic and man when when george or when eric starts playing the the rhythm by himself when the whole band enters i think it's one of the most powerful moments in the show you know it is so humongous with that that solitary guitar and then the oh man so good it's it's there's really there's not much to say about it it, it it's performed it's not just performed capably it is performed with so much intention not just from eric but from everybody on that stage and again, that's just what sets this entire show apart from so many other shows. It's not just like, oh, we looked up how to play it or we learned how to play it and now we're playing all the notes. Like, It's one thing to play the notes. It's another to play the song. And these guys are inhibiting the spirit of the song. I don't want this next phrase to sound like I'm bashing Jeff Lynne because he's given the three best performances so far. But I feel like Beware of Darkness on this set list is the first time when you realise okay, we're actually going to be doing very interesting, very big, powerful things with this music. Sure. Everything else up until now has been like, great, fine, dandy, super, spiffing, but not particularly resonant. Whereas now I'm feeling like, oh, okay, there's... there's yeah, I mean, I, I, behind this. I'm, no, but 
please don't take that too literally because I know that there was emotion and resonance in all those previous recordings, but mm-hmm. this is when I've truly instinctively felt it. I was like, oh, like I, I, I got a little rush in my lower diaphragm. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, just as that's not a negative against you and not a negative because I, I do think the performances of the inner light and give me love are very emotional and very good and nothing against either of those songs. But I also think that beware of darkness is the first song so far we're just compositionally and lyrically it's as heavy and it's as deep as it is. And and that also plays a massive part in it. Yeah. It's, it's not that any of the performances before this weren't any less intentional or emotional, but just, you have to consider the source material and as a composition, beware of darkness is maybe the strongest song mm-hmm. performed so far um, just at, at its core. So I think that plays a major role in it as well. And a lot of this is down to the sequencing. They knew that you couldn't put Beware of Darkness first and then have Give Me Love because it'd be like heavy, slight, heavy, slight. That's a bit too McCartney-esque. We've just had relatively, comparatively light stuff up until now. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, especially considering the next song we're going into, this is Eric going, right, big boy time now, okay? We're going to get into (laughs) some of the adult stuff now. And yep. with that, we go into the next track. And Eric knew we'd need a hit right about now. You know, four mediocre George Harrison tracks is like 20 minutes of R-Pan. You need to have something in the middle now to kind of... Mediocre? What? what? Wake everyone up a bit. So, oh, my God. Comparatively. Slander. Comparatively. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like saying... You know, Through Our Love is a mediocre McCartney ballad, and yet it's one of the greatest ballads ever written. You know, it's oh. it's all in this. It, you, you, you know, mm-hmm. you've got to compare it. But we're going to go into what is objectively the first mega song of the night. And it doesn't go to Eric. It doesn't go to Jeff Lynne. We're going to have Joe Brown doing Here Comes the Sun. Neil Gauntlet on lead guitar, Dave Rico Niles on bass, and Phil Capaldi on the drums. Now, dude, is it is it safe to say that most people, despite having heard the name, don't actually know who Joe Brown is or listen to his music? I mean, he's I, I, I had never heard his name before this. Yeah, he he is described as a musician's musician. So he's like one of those comedians who all the comedians love, but he doesn't get any laughs in a stadium. And 
I read up a bit on this. George was an absolutely massive Joe Brown fan. Even while he was in the Beatles, he was a fan of mm-hmm. Joe Brown. And Joe Brown's clearly the oldest guy in this entire stadium because he's the one who is actually older than being a teenager in the in the sixties, teenager in the fifties. And he brings an experience and a steady hand and a, 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 a sure-footedness that is absolutely breathtaking. I mean, we use the word effortless a lot on this podcast to describe Paul, but here, with this song and the next one, Joe Brown makes it look effortless. He looks like he's just done it, like he's just come out of the toilet or the pub or something. He's like, oh, am I, oh, I doing this? Okay, cool. Uh, pick up the guitar. Here comes the sun. And, it, and it's note for note perfect. And yeah. there's no strain or stress. It doesn't even look like a performance. This just looks like something that accidentally happened one day. And it is, and it's just so mellifluous and it's heartbreaking, really. I mean, you know, Eric's there. He was there with George when he wrote this song. And you know, he's looking over and being like, God, there was that motherfucker who wrote this song and he's not here anymore. And that sucks. And not only do you have the emotion of the song, the emotion of the backstory of the song, we've also just got the emotion that Joe Brown brings to it as well. The, the, the whole performance is so earnest. There's no showmanship. He, he, he's like the best band you've ever seen in a bar live. And I mean that in the best possible way with no irony whatsoever. Yeah, there's there's a complete lack of pretension to this uh, performance. He He plays it so... Yeah, very, very straightforward, very unfussy, but you can tell that, like anyone else with two ears and a beating heart, that he just loves <laughs> the song. And and he's so he's so happy. Like in some ways, it's almost unspectacular, not in a negative way, but it, it's just like it is played so faithfully and straightforward uh in a lot of ways. The Phil Capaldi on the drums, who I have something to say about him in a minute. Uh, he he doesn't, you know, play exactly what Ringo was playing, but it, it's just a very, like you said, earnest, careful performance. Not careful, like uh, again in a negative way. Um, I I don't have that much in some ways to say about it because I think you've you've hit on it. It's a very yeah, I keep going back to that word earnest. It's a very yeah. earnest, unpretentious performance. Workmanlike was the word. Workmanlike. Yeah. It just seems like this is his job. It's not his passion. This yeah. is this is what he does to to put food on the table. And to do that, he has to do it well. You mm-hmm. know, he doesn't even need the emotion. He doesn't even need it. He could just come in and do this. If he hated George Harrison, he would have come in and done this in the exact same perfect way. But- but what ultimately makes it so good and so perfect is that he does love the song and he does love George and it comes across. It, it's one of those things, you know it when you see it and you know it when you hear it. Like you can tell when someone is phoning something in and this is the exact opposite of that. He's honored to be there. Him and George had a great friendship. They they had a partnership and uh you can tell that he's 1000% taking it seriously, but you're right. It, it's almost, it's almost like he doesn't have to try. 
Something I never picked up on until recently, oh, though. Oh, are we finally here, folks? Is this the is, is that first flubs? <laughs> so Phil Phil Capaldi on what has to be the biggest stage of his life, like bar none, suffers every drummer's worst nightmare, which is starting the song with the snare turned off on the snare drum when it's supposed to be turned on, which, (laughs) which has happened to me. And I think every other drummer, at least once it's happened to me a few times before, you know, you turn it off for a song either where you're not playing. So you don't want the snare to ring out or a song where maybe you're playing with mallets and you want all Tom sounds to use the snare as a Tom. And then you forget to turn it on you know, before the next song. And it, this explains why if you listen to the first verse, he misses a few snare hits because he has to reach to try to turn it back on. And I never noticed it until the last time I watched it because yeah, I noticed like, Oh, that's an interesting decision he made to leave out those snare drum hits. I never really <laughs> noticed that before. And then I went back and watched it. It was like, Oh, and if you listen on the first da 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 if you listen really closely, you can tell that it's more of a tom sound than a snare sound. He gets lucky because he's playing with hot rods instead of normal drumsticks, and those give the drums a lighter sound. If he was playing with a full-on stick, it would have sounded a lot more egregious, so thankfully it didn't. But yeah, I just started laughing the last time I watched it because I was like, I never noticed that before, and oh my god... For it to happen at this event, <laughs> I mean, the chance, I, I don't know what the chances are of Phil Capaldi ever listening to this podcast. I mean, he'll be mortified because you have, as a musician, you always assume when you make a mistake that everybody noticed it, when in reality, a lot of people never really do. And I didn't pick up on it until you know, probably the hundredth time I watched or listened to the show. Uh, but Phil, if you're listening, I know what you did. Um, but don't feel bad. It happens to the best of us. I'm Look, sorry it happened to you at the concert for George at the Royal Albert Hall. Lewis Capaldi would never have made that mistake. You know? Jesus uh, Christ. I was hoping <laughs> to not think about Lewis Capaldi today. Oh, uh, no. What the UK needs is another slightly overweight white boy with an acoustic guitar. We've not had enough of them <laughs> in recent years. <laughs> oh, boy. But yeah, folks, like Dylan. This is one of my shortest bunch of notes here because it's so good. It's so competent. It just does what it sets out to do and achieves its objective with such grace and ease. It actually doesn't leave a lot for analysis. So after talking about Capaldi's awful drums that ruined the concert for George, he should be ashamed of himself. Ashamed. You know the bit in Game of Thrones when they march them naked through the street? Shame, boom, shame, <laughs> boom. Who's Phil Capaldi? Just shut up, shut up, just carry on with Karen. Uh, <laughs> the drummer for who? Now. The drummer for who? Is he one of the heartbreakers? Well, you... oh, no. <laughs> no, Ferroni would never. We'll get to that later. Uh, I guess that's the way it goes, Dylan. Speaking of that phrase, uh, it is now time for us to talk about a track that must have made George diehards who thought that Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth was a deep cut, absolutely shit their pants. Because nobody, and I repeat, nobody was expecting that's the way it goes. Oh. 
in the show except for Anushka Shankar I love that we just get to give Joe Brown this little two song stint because as we know he'll have the final song so it's like well we can either give him three spaced out ones or do a double bill really early on and then you get the last one and I think that's the more effective one you know he gets the best of Mm -hmm. both worlds being early and late in the bill whereas the heartbreakers will pick up the slack in the middle section Mm -hmm. I must confess never heard of this one before and much more so than the others, you know, may have heard the title of one or like, oh, I know he did that with Jules Holland, etc., etc. But this one was like, nope, not a clue. And it's because it's from Gone Troppo. And once I realised that this was an amazing track, I'd actually have had no need to go back to Gone Troppo and check out the original version. Like, Joe Brown's so brilliant here. I've heard so many awful things about that album. I've heard the version of Circles that he did on that album when it was just a white album a few years ago when that was re-released. And I've not been enticed. So, as far as I'm concerned, Joe Brown's version of That's The Way It Goes is the best song from Gone Troppo. But, like Ringo Starr, has Joe Brown only chosen this song because he played on it? Would this have had any chance of being played if Joe Brown was not at this gig? I mean, it, it's a it's a solid question, but it's also, if that is the reason, I take zero issues with that whatsoever because ultimately they were there to celebrate George's life and knowing what friendship and collaboration meant to him, I think it's it's perfectly acceptable if that's the only reason. Uh, but I don't think it's the only reason. I also think it's because it is a fantastic song. I think it's one of the strongest songs in George's solo discography. Um, and I, I would recommend going and listening to the original version. Um, I, I think, you know, passing, you know, you can only pass judgment on a record once you've heard it, and Gone Troppo doesn't have the best uh, the best reputation, but I also know that you grew to really appreciate Pipes of Peace, which is, you know, one of the, you know, more uh, slagged-off records in, in McCartney's catalog. So, you know, and you might feel about Gone Troppo the way that, that a lot of people do, but, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and, and tell you that, you know, you, you're right to 
to judge it solely on its reputation. Um, Dylan, I'll meet you halfway. I'll get really stoned before I listen to it for the first time. So I'll perfect. put myself in the best mindset. I think whatever you ultimately think of that record, whether you absolutely adore it or think it's the worst thing you'll ever heard, I think that you'll agree that that's the way it goes. Is fantastic. And, and, and Joe Brown, I mean, what a, a joyous performance. This whole performance just exudes happiness and love the guitar is just happiness as a note like if you look yeah. at the dictionary yeah you know how yeah. like wikipedia you can play a word to hear how it's pronounced happiness like it's just got that hawaiian spongebob brightness yeah. to the t- <laughs> to the t- <laughs> it's got that to it like you know who lives in a pineapple under the sea, George Harris. You know, it, it, it has that that carefree, joyous, it's very shameless in how bright it is. Yep. It's not like, oh, there's a dour, a biting uh, metaphor. No, no, it's just, that's the way it goes. And like, for, for, for Joe to sing this song at the memorial for George, and, you know, the fact that George definitely probably knew that things weren't looking great in the next 10, 15 years for him, for his health, it adds another layer of depth to the song without having to bog it down in the mire of, you know, oh, he died, isn't that sad? It's just, yeah, you know, it's like when, when I saw Stevie Wonder and he came out on stage and went, I have never seen so many beautiful people. And it dispersed the tension. And I feel like he's dispersing the, the sadness and the tension around George's death by doing one of his sad Requiem-esque songs in gorgeously upbeat manner like you cannot help but start to bop along to to this one and for me not knowing a song is normally a big disadvantage but there was Mm. a freshness and excitable newness that very much worked in its favor for me i completely agree i i've it's always been one of my favorites since the first time i saw the show uh, because of how out of left field and unknown it seemed and in hindsight i i probably continue to love it even more because of, of how great this performance of it is and and yeah you bring up a good point you know you had never heard it and and probably most people in that that hall hadn't heard it because of the album that it was on it's not just that Gontrapo isn't thought of in a positive manner it's barely thought of at all it was an album released with absolutely zero coverage he did no press whatsoever there's so many people that didn't know that album existed you know it would have been one thing maybe if if he started playing cracker box palace or blow away you know songs that maybe be, people would be like oh yeah i i think the i remember song, this yeah, or yeah. yeah or like or i i at least remember the the title being a thing like no this was not a single. <laughs> there, there were, I don't know if there might have maybe Wake Up My Love, the opening track. Maybe that was a single, or I think Dream Away was a single too. But like the album was given zero press whatsoever. So, so out of left field for everyone there. But, but even with that, like you said, that might be a deterrent. I mean, think about how it would be for people in the crowd, but how can you not? love it how can you not love this song and it's funny because yeah the lyrics are very kind of i don't know dower is necessarily the right word but it's it's got that that george kind of sarcasm and and um 
you know, so, social commentary, like, hey, you know, isn't this kind of messed up that that's the way it goes, that this is how things are? But, I mean, that's the beauty of, of the song. You know, there's so many great songs where you you listen to it and you feel and think one thing and you read the lyrics and think, oh, God, is that what it's about? You know, obviously the most uh, famous example being Help literally a cry for help when i was young so much younger than today and it's the same thing with this song but yeah i i don't know how anyone could listen to this and not absolutely love it uh, this is if if I, if I had to power rank all the songs in the show uh this would this would be top five easily i i absolutely adore it I was listening to this track the other day and something that I never really picked up on and it's one of my favourite parts and it's some great George Harrison songwriting. It's how he keeps the middle of each verse a bit more bright and interesting. So it's like stocks and shares, stops and shares, like that. And the way it goes straight into it, there's no like, it, yeah. feels, it feels like one line, but you go and check out those, those are two different lines and he's cramming them together in this really fun way and it keeps it as, Know, flowing and mercurial as it is at the start it, you know well george was the master at fitting in like odd type of signatures where you wouldn't expect or where like they quote unquote shouldn't be and you know this is a song again common time is what we call four four one mm. two three four 99 percent of songs you've ever heard are are four four and most of the song is uh but it gets that part that part uh one two three four one seems to me is one two three 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 four but like that might not even be exactly right what i just did but it's like he finds all of these ways to fit these in it's he's such a brilliant songwriter god god you know what George, George was Harrison was, was awesome. He's all right, wasn't wasn't George Harrison fucking awesome? I mean, that's that's really the greater thing to take away from all this. Like, but what's also awesome, and I'll, and I'll let you handle the the main segue here. What's awesome is how out of left field this is, and you, and you look at the overall set list, and there's only so many songs that come from out of left field. This is one of them, and then the very next song. <laughs> no, no, dude. If you thought the last song was obscure. At least that was on a George Harrison album. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have something that a McCartney fan will rarely ever see live, which is two obscure songs in a row. This is Horse to Water.
a song that is a spotlight moment for Jules Holland on the piano and Sam Brown on the lead vocals. Holland is a member of Squeeze, founder of the Jules Holland Rhythm and Blues Orchestra, and is also the host and band leader for his live annual Hooter Nanny, which I have watched almost every year since like 95. Um, <laughs> that was the show that introduced me to Amy Winehouse, Mark Ronson, Kasabian, Kaiser Chiefs. Like, so many, I, I, I know so much music through Jules Holland. And it's so weird that unless he's in that Hooter Nanny aesthetic, He's just some guy. Like, you know, he was, there was a David Hockney exhibit that Paul McCartney was at, and, was, and oh, Jules Holland's there, and he's with McCartney and Elton John and Tom Hanks and all these guys, Tom Hanks again. And so this was one that I did not know about at all. And so I think I can be forgiven for that, though, because it was on, what's the, what's the album called? It was called Small World by Jules Holland's Rhythm and Orchestra. And George Harrison wrote the song. I think he co-wrote it with Danny. And it's his last vocal on anything ever. It's past brainwashed. I think everything he recorded for brainwashed had been recorded mm-hmm. by that point. He's already done Devil in the Deep Blue Sea on the Duke and all that. Like, we all know that. But this is his last vocal. That was back in 91. Oh, was it? Was that really all mm-hmm. That was recorded live on Jules Fallen show. Yeah, that, that's what I'm thinking of it. That's what I'm thinking yeah. of it. But yeah, Harrison only performed vocals on that track was too weak from battling cancer to play guitar and he died about two months later so if we're going by the timeline of this this is only being performed about a year and four months after they'd re- recorded it in the first place so if you want to talk about provenance on a song this is steeped in it you know they've barely had enough time to forget about it and i, I have to imagine that this song was included on, on Danny's behalf because this is the last thing that him and his dad did together and, and that's just conjecture on my part I don't know if that's true but but Makes I was sense. trying to but I was trying to think like because it's always been confounding like why why is this song in this it's not a bad song I think it's a great song I think Sam Brown forms the oh, ever loving hell out of it she is God. incredible and the and the band behind her I mean the the horns are wailing away everyone is is absolutely crushing it but I always, I always did wonder. I'm like, you know, it, probably very few people <laughs> knew it. You know, there's so many. Again, there's so many other songs. I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, well, barely any solo songs were performed. Like outside of all things must pass. But like, hell, even with all things must pass, like, what is life isn't performed, which is one of his biggest solo hits ever. It's like, so why is why is this song performed? And thinking on it recently, that was. The main reason I thought of maybe why, like, I have to imagine this song really means a lot to Danny. And, and talking about how much, you know, Jeff Lynne probably had to say, I think that Danny certainly had a, a decent amount of say as well. I mean, this, this show clearly and obviously meant a lot to him. That goes without saying. And yeah, the, the last thing that George did. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've gone back and listened to the the George version yet. Um, but it, it, it's pretty, um, it, it, it's pretty, it's not tough to listen to, but, but, but it is very, um, emotion to listen to. Cause I think his, his voice sounds good. He's hitting all the notes, but, but you can tell he's weak and, and it's th- that aspect of it is very, very 
I think difficult and, and emotional if, if you're not in the right moment um, to hear him clearly not at 100%. But even not at 100%, like he still hits all the notes and there's clearly passion there. But it's, uh, it, it, I, I would go back and listen to it if, if you haven't yet. Um, so with it's, it's really George's good. performance on this song, it depends entirely or not whether you're a cynic. If you're a cynic, you sure. don't think he gave a bad vocal performance. I don't care about the extenuating circumstances. It's not very good. And I'm not going to sit here and say it's up there with his best vocal performances. You know, no. I think I think that tour where he needed uh, honey every night to keep his vocal cords better. Some of that sounded better than this. Yeah. But there's something called context and there's something called, you know, the wider world. And because of that, it does make it like like I say, one of the most emotive Harrison vocals there is. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't particularly be that drawn to it if I if I, you know you gave it to me without any context. But knowing that, yeah, and knowing that he's going to have to fight through his illness, and you know, he, he might even be sitting down because he can't physically stand. So therefore, his vocals are not going to be the same as they were if he was standing up. And yeah, and he only has so much breath to give yeah. anyway. You know, you know. So what? What an incredible juxtaposition then between that and then Sam Brown here, just again an absolute powerhouse. Yes, I so mean, she was a backing vocalist on the original take, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. The idea that maybe Danny was there in the studio and he heard her back there going, "Hearts to the water," and it's like. She didn't do bad, actually. She was actually pretty damn good with that. I don't think she was brought along for any other reason other than Danny wanted her to be there. I don't think it was like Jules Holland brought her. I was like, oh, well, she was on the track. She has to be there. Because there's probably eight or nine other people who were on that original track that aren't here. Yeah. It's not the Jules Holland big band blues rhythm orchestra or the Denny Lane rhythm mm. string band, whichever what it is, I, f- I forget. There's too many to, to remember, but she's brought for an important reason. That's because she does incredible vocal work and she gives yeah. the song in very much in the same way that Anushka Shankar played the, the sitar the way George probably wishes he could have. She here <laughs> gives the vocal that George probably wishes he could have mm. given in the studio. Great point. At that Great time. Point. And Hang on. It's not like there's a massive tradition of black female vocalists uh, doing Beatle material and then making it even better. It's not like there's a, a massive precedent for that or anything. So whether intentionally or not, it's nice that they were actually able to honour that as well. Overall, this yeah. is a, a beautiful little track. Yeah. In any other concert, this would probably be the low point of the show. I really do think it would be, but... <laughs> What's this? I don't care. Who are these two? They weren't on All Things Must... must. They were on Brainwashed. They were on... I don't care. You know, that kind of thing. And yet here, it's like the most obscure one is giving me more than Eric Clapton doing If I Needed Someone. You know what I'm saying? That's a weird, weird set of emotions to have to go through. What would be the parallel at the concert for Paul? What would be the horse, horse to water? At the concert for Paul, like... Oh, uh, Voice, the song he did with Heather Mills. <laughs> or may, maybe, hope, or hope, hope for the Future, maybe. Hope for the Future. Uh, <laughs> this goes out to all the PlayStation fans. Woo! <laughs> Destiny, yeah! Oh, now, maybe something like getting someone massive, Elton John, to come on and do Tug of Peace. <laughs> oh, God. Or like I'd or be, <laughs> Billy Joel doing Uwe Sole, you know. <laughs> you wow! I 
I wasn't anticipating somebody actually describing my worst nightmare, but choosing one of my least favorite artists playing one of my least favorite McCartney songs. That's one of the best McCartney tracks. What are you on about? Let's continue on with Concert for George. The Soleil. All right, Come next. It's, it's got soaring wood in it. What so, would you want? So Sam Brown and Jules Holland leave the stage and on comes. And uh, moving ever onwards, this is the first song that we actually have, I believe, that is a repeat of an album we've heard already. So this is the second song from Revolver, and no one minds hearing a second Revolver song. It's like saying, oh, I'm really sorry, uh, Paul's going to have to use some... Uh, leftover RAM material for a B-side. That's fine by me, folks. That's fine. Well, if you insist. <laughs> yes. Look, uh, I mean, <laughs> oh well. Let me tell you Tom Petty from a certain band called Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He's on lead vocals and rhythm guitar. You've got Mike Campbell on lead guitar, Scott Thurston doing backing vocals and rhythm guitar, and Ben Mont Tetch on electric piano, thank you. And right. uh, Ron Blair on bass and Steve Ferrone. Ferroni. 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 Oh, Ferroni. Stugatz on the drums. Yeah, he's he's a he's a British black guy, but sure, we'll go. We'll go no, the no, next, no, so. no. Oh, oh, is he? Oh, yes. <laughs> hey, Tony, I gotta go to the concert for George. You gotta do numbers this week. I remember not being too impressed with this one at first, but having immersed myself in the album for weeks now, I've got to say that this is easily one of the most remarkable of the concert. Dylan, you know you can't tell if you love or hate something about a song, and I have that when it comes to Petty's vocal. Please help me choose. Is Petty appropriately nasally and whiny or is he a bit a bit unsuited in the way Eric Clapton was for this one I can't tell he's either like the best fit for this song or the worst you cannot pick somewhere in the middle for this one I'm sorry you know what's so funny is my first note is maybe Tom is being so nasally to pay tribute to Bob Dylan not being able to be there (laughs) because especially it's not as egregious throughout the whole song, but especially the first two lines, it's like... <laughs> and so I, I've probably... I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, but um, for me, it is, it's kind of the Beatles, Bob Dylan, and, and everyone else. Beatle, Beatles are my one, Dylan's my two, but Tom Petty... And, and Tom Payne and the Heartbreakers are 
so clearly my number three, the, the love and reverence that I have for Tom Petty as a musician, a uh, songwriter, uh, everything. Uh, he means so much to me. His, his, his catalog means so much to me. I, I cried more over Tom Petty's death than I have over certain family members passing away. Petty is, is, is everything. I, I literally, when he, what would have been his 70th birthday, I, I set up a series of seven streams um, to celebrate his 70th birthday with, with um, a bunch of over, I think, 111 different artists covering one of his songs uh, for seven different charities. Um, that's how much uh, Petty has influenced me. So mm-hmm. with that said, I think this is more of a case of it not being the right song for him to be the vocalist for, which I don't feel about the next song, which we'll we'll get into in a second. But also I will say this for me, maybe this, this might ultimately end up being our biggest quote unquote disagreement. Tax man is a song for me. And we've talked about this before uh, in our trip in the life, fantastic and Paul's live episodes with certain songs. I, I particularly feel this way about, Eleanor Rigby too. Taxman is a song that I just don't think has ever sounded any better than it did on the original recording. There is a palpable energy and vibe to the recording. Uh, and that is a testament, not, not only to everyone's performance on the original track, but just the way it sounds, George Martin's production and Jeff Emmerich's engineering. It, it is, it's unbelievable. And and there's some great performances of Taxman. And I think this is a pretty damn good performance. And I mean, Mike Campbell nails the solo. I love that he stretches it out a little bit at the end. Mm-hmm. I think Ferroni, um, Ferroni plays it well. Also, Ferroni played this song. Ferroni was in Eric Clapton's band for that tour. So he actually was on the, the Japanese tour with Harrison. So he kind of comes a little full circle here. Mm-hmm. So the original drummer of the Heartbreakers was a drummer named Stan Lynch. Um, he eventually left and then Ferroni came in. And there is a noticeable shift in Petty's music when Ferroni comes in and Lynch went out. Ferroni is a very professional drummer. He's a great drummer. His tempos are rock solid. He can play anything. And everything that he plays on is fantastic. But Stan Lynch had a swagger to him. And... That is what ultimately makes a drummer like Ringo. And it's not that Steve Ferroni plays Taxman badly, but I do think if you listen to this version and then the album version, there's just that that it factor to it. And it has nothing to do with Ferroni being a bad drummer. It has nothing to do with this being a bad performance because it's a very good performance. It's just one of those songs for me where it was recorded the way it was recorded and, and that's kind of it. And every other version I've heard by any other artist or any of George's live versions or this version, they just don't, they don't touch the original for me, but Campbell nails it. Scott Thurston crushes it on the background and Scott Thurston, yeah. he's like a Swiss army knife. Uh, <laughs> I mean, throughout he, he joined um, the heartbreakers uh, when Petty did full moon fever produced by Jeff Lynn and featuring George Harrison playing acoustic guitar on, I won't back down. And I think singing backing vocals that I won't back down because it's a Jeff Lynn production. There's so many acoustic guitars on it. <laughs> they needed another guitarist. Uh, 
for the tour. So they brought in Scott Thurston as their auxiliary member, and he ended up staying in the band right up until Penny passed. And he was their Swiss Army knife, which you also see throughout this concert. He eventually does harmonica, another song, and and vocally, too. he was also a Swiss Army knife with the Stooges in the seventies. Some people don't know that or forget that. And it's so funny because Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, such a classic Americana roots rock act. Like, but this guy was in like in some not the first punk band, but like one of the forefathers of punk rock music. But he uh, he when Iggy and some of the others in that band were just like essentially dying while living of, of heroin and, and other drug use and somehow still live. Scott Thurston was kind of holding it all together. He is an unbelievable musician. He's a musician's musician. And uh, when he first comes in, you know, Petty comes in with the vocals and I've always thought the same thing. Again, I hold Petty in this rarefied air and even I have always felt like maybe this isn't the right song for him. But when Thurston starts singing with him, it all makes sense. And it all sounds good. His ah Mister it it's no, it just sounds like Paul and John at the same time. I don't know how yeah. he does it. Yeah, it is a kind of sure, steady granite foundation for the rest of the vocal yeah. to, to be built off. Even though Petty's does comes first. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. One of my favorite parts about this song, though, is that like Joe Brown, this does feel like more of a Heartbreakers arrangement than an Eric Clapton House band one. I'm sure yeah. they had to run it past Eric for the old thumbs up, but <laughs> it, it, it's it's a little more chug-a-lug and shuffly than the original. It's about half a minute longer, which does completely change the vibe. So it it, yeah. it, it isn't. The Beatles, Taxman. This is very much Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Do yep. Taxman. Yeah, I, I think you know Benmont kind of adding those like Booker T and the MG style. You know, adding that organ in there. You know, mm-hmm. add, adds a little bit of extra flair to it. And then yeah, like I said, having that extended solo at the end for for Mike Campbell to let loose is is great. And and it is one of the few moments in the concert where they do that, where they do kind of vary from the original template of the song and and make it a bit of their own. And and I don't think it would have been necessary or appropriate for most other songs to do that, but it works for this one because it's a short song enough as it is. Like we can afford to, to let Campbell do his thing. The only thing about the length and the style and the vibe is that it doesn't have that stop start immediacy. That, mm, ah, mm, ah, yeah, like, I like, agree. It feels very, it, and part of that comes from what I was saying about Ferroni's yeah. drumming too. It doesn't have that, powerful as powerful well, you know that Ringo's gun uh, drums are probably being gated or cut off at the end so the, 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 there is no probably in those it's, there's no it, it, it's not like bridge over troubled water or, or the box sure <laughs> yeah yeah the other thing I wanted to point out is the restraint on Paul's part for not coming on stage and doing the solo. Like they allowed Mike Campbell to have his little moment at the concert for George where he was going, like that's just lovely for him. Yeah. Because my God, George would have, you know that bit in The Simpsons when Lenin comes back from the dead, must crush capitalism. If Paul had played the solo for Taxman at the concert for George, George would have shown that reincarnation was possible into your own body because he would have just come back out and gone right where is that fucking cunt I'm going to have him and you just stab him with a bowie knife 
especially because George thought so highly of Mike Campbell, you know, George and Tom, you know, it should be said, Tom Petty is here because him and George were very close friends. They, they had been friendly already in the 80s, but then forming uh, the Traveling Wilburys brought them closer together. They ended up being really close friends for the rest of their lives. And a big part of that, too, um, you know, Mike Campbell has always been Tom's right-hand man. Even when Tom went off and did, you know, Full Moon Fever, Wildflowers, Highway Companion, his quote-unquote solo albums, they were always done at least with Mike Campbell. And, uh, you know, George was around for when they were doing Full Moon Fever with Jeff Lynne, and hence him being on I Won't Back Down. And I believe George is on record as saying that Mike Campbell was his favorite slide guitarist or one of his favorite slide guitarists. So obviously it means a lot for Petty to be there. Um, But also a little more subtly, it means something for, I think, Mike Campbell to be there as well. And I'm also glad that he got that moment. Can't wait to hear from Mike Campbell's slide again on For You Blue later on. 